Citadel on Murray, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Jean Chandler. guest is John Chandler. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, John, why don't you give us a little bit about your martial arts background and how you got started in Western martial arts? Yeah, so um, uh, I'm a little bit odd duck in that sense that um, my I don't really have proper martial arts background prior to HEMA. I have been doing HEMA for a long time. I was a punk back in the 80s. Yeah, we got into some... Uh, ridiculous little street fights and stuff like that and that's pretty much what i bring to the table on that level uh, i've been involved in hema um since about 2002 and uh probably didn't know what i was doing for several years at all and then we started much more seriously uh probably from, from since about 2008 2009 and i've been into the history the historical context of the fencing manuals or fight books um around 2012 that's a lot of dates but let's say uh you know 10 years uh pretty serious research and that's become my niche uh context of the fight books and in particular central europe and the the free cities and although i'm also very interested italy and the universities and the city states glad to have y'all yeah so it's kind of sort of exactly what we're doing like yeah what were people actually doing and Right, you, you you know, I think that yeah. the HEMA world, there's so many people that are that thank God are are taking the manual seriously now, and they do, but they do this sort of Talmudic study of the manuals and every word that's in it, without really knowing anything about the people who wrote the manuals or who used these fencing systems, the world they lived in, and I think that just you know, if it's if you're just studying sort of the word of God, so to speak, you know, like uh, you're re- re- reading the Bible to understand the entire world. You're going to miss some things, and so I, I'm all about bringing in the rest of the world a little bit because I think it just opens up so much more, and it helps you understand the language. It helps you understand, you know, things like we've just we've talked about the scaled violence, and you know how sometimes you're fighting for sport, sometimes you're fighting to neutralize somebody or defend yourself, sometimes you're fighting to kill, and there's a scale, you know. And so when you read about what kind of things happened and what kind of fighting went on, and what you know, all those things start making a lot more sense, and you have some of these debates that go on online can really be cleared up by just understanding the, the context a bit more. Um, at least that's what I say, because I'm really into Whereas after you've studied for a while, as you yeah, for... all have noticed, you just pulled in and then you just love history. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the fencing yeah. part actually becomes a bit less interesting and the history becomes more interesting. I know, yeah. And then you're just, you're it does. Aristotle and logic. Right. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Josh will will frequently be like, I can't believe this guy and this guy had this duel in this particular place in this particular time. You know? <laughs> it's it's great. Like there's just so much specific detail that once you come across and so rich and deep and fascinating, and it it really informs the whole reason that these manuals 
And I think one of the really pleasant surprises about the sources for me is that, although they're not all like this, but, you know, I think when I was very young and I was I was drawn to the Middle Ages, I loved sword fighting and all the, you know, Tolkien and all that kind of stuff. But then I read Chaucer, and it's a good story, but, man, the language is tough. It's like, I can't believe it. It's so thee and thou. And, and, but when I'm reading, um, you know, a chronicle from Augsburg or if I'm reading Jacques Meyer or if I'm reading Aeneas Piccolomini, uh, or or Jan Tulugos from Poland or any of these people, that just sounds like a, a somebody that I would talk to today who was ten times or a hundred times smarter than anybody I met before. Right. Like they do not. It doesn't seem archaic. It doesn't seem so foreign. Yeah, there's some words and place names that are unfamiliar until you learn them. You don't know who they're talking about. You know. Um, but once you are a little bit familiar with the geography and with some of the key figures and so on, like it starts to really click, and, and you're 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 you know you either it's easy to relate to these people. Their their language isn't so formal. They're it's a good mix of kind of polite with the occasional dirty joke or something mixed in. You know what I mean? Like, right. Uh, Just like we would have. Exactly. It's relatable. Yeah. You know. So I, I find a home there that I didn't expect, and uh, you know I'm. My people. I'm not from Germany, or I, I, I lived in Germany a little bit in the army. I think that that helped me have some insight. I was in West Germany in the '80s, uh, but you know, I'm focused a lot on Poland and Czechia, uh, Czech Republic, whatever it's called these days, uh, and and you know, Central Europe in general. And and I don't have connections necessarily to these places, but you you feel kinship, and and I as I also do when I read Italian sources and it becomes familiar because the, uh, yeah, the, there's, there's definitely, it, it, it's more familiar to me than if you read 17th century sources and 18th century, those are a lot stranger to me. I find, you know, that that's another, yeah. another weird concept that it seems like history, we, we're sort of taught that history is an inevitable rise of all things, you know, the inevitable march of progress, but that doesn't seem to actually be the case. It seems like it went up and down a lot and, and sort of, Renaissance, late medieval period was one of the up parts. I'm, I'm creased. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's fascinating, right? Because you, yeah, you get to like the imperial age and like the absolute monarchs and it's like government becomes so, so impossibly powerful. Yeah. And it's like, there was still hope for the common man in the Renaissance and in, in the in medieval times where they could kind of like establish themselves i mean once especially once you get out of feudalism and you get away from like the land-based economies and everything like that and you start to see those free cities start to come up you like you you actually see like the hope of like of self-existence and it, it it's like it's empowering in a way like there are times when i read you know things about certain guild members you know getting knighted because they just distinguish themselves on the battlefield and then Next thing you know, within a couple of centuries, they're just a well-respected, like the Mariscotti, for example. Um, really fascinating thing that I was reading the other day. Um, the Stephen, you'll appreciate this, but the the Malvezzi actually tried to like separate the Mariscotti from the Bentivoglio uh, when Galeazzo Mariscotti ended up saving Annibale Bentivoglio's life when he broke him out of jail. He was like, how could how could Annibale sully himself by making the second family in Bologna a bunch of peasants in the Mariscotti? And it's like, well, that's what? <laughs> that's crazy. Are you serious? 
yeah it's like holy shit like this guy literally just like went into a castle like literally scaled the wall of a castle to go in there and break this guy out of prison with five dudes like went into a castle with five dudes scaled the wall broke this guy out of prison and then brought him back and then managed to like take out one of the like the leading condottieri at the time and like put him in power and your response is yeah but he's a peasant like it's just like well, yeah, <laughs> they never total stopped. But you know, you know, yeah. that, but of course, I'm, no, I'm sure you're aware of this, but like that Bologna was one of the epicenters of this sort of uh, empowerment of the of the middle class. Uh, right. You know about the Liber Paradisius? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, where they set the, say, the f- serfs free. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Bologna literally spends 50,000 pounds, as in actual pounds, weight-wise, of silver, to free all the serfs and slaves in their whole district, and it was really to take the nobles down a peg, and and some of the yeah. and some of the sort of patrician families in the town too, and and to provide a lot of labor for their growing economy. Plus, that would be paid labor, which you then have an incentive to make efficient. And they buy stuff, so there's a knockoff right. effect. And they knew that. Yeah. They knew that. You know, they knew that they slavery was, uh, you know, very good for the general economy and serfdom was like the drag on everything so they're like no we we we're gonna make these people weavers and that was in the 1200s i think right well yeah 12 yeah i think so six looking at when yeah 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 that's that sounds right you know i remember that um it, it is interesting because that 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 moment defines bolognese politics all the way up until you know the mid-15th century. Don't they call it Bologna La Rosa, kind of, you know? Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's still elements of it, but, like, from, I think from our historical picture in particular, like, mid-15th century, it kind of starts to change because you do have the Signore of the Bentivoglio, and they kind of, you know, become oligarchs and start being... Well, yeah, I think that had happened in Bologna beforehand. It seemed to happen on and off. Uh, and I used to, when I was, you can, you guys may, maybe can help me understand this better because when I was first reading about the Italian cities and the Lombard League and when they, their sort of episode of, of Max, you know, peak freedom was kind of, you know, in that earlier period in the 13th century, yeah. and the 12th century, mm-hmm. after they defeated the, the, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, but then gradually most of them start getting taken over by Signore, you know, and, and I, and, right. and, and then I would start writing them off. But then I, I would read about these cities later and it seems like the Republican institutions are still there. And I read an uh, academic article that was saying that basically they would have these sort of uh, condottieri guys or whoever, these conti or overlords, but the city itself was still more or less functioning as a republic because that was the more efficient system. You know, so you had sort of like, yeah, free, you think, or that buried back mm-hmm. down, or I was reading. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. So my take on it is, so with Bologna in particular. Okay. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Stephen. Sorry. So my take on it is basically that's about it. So you still have a republic, but you have a top family to give people an incentive not to be fighting to become the top family. So all the Italians, when there's are by nature just intensely, violently competitive and super jealous of each other. And so you need to have a seniority to keep things kind of in line. Um, but it also changes. Like Milan, for example, was a total, was not a republic at all. 
So one of the most important distinguishments is there would be the seniors who lived in a palace in the city and those who lived in a castle in the city. And generally, if you lived in a palace in the city, then it was more Republican probably than it was dictatorial. And if you lived in a castle in the city, then you probably was more dictatorial than it was Republican. That's really interesting because, you know, in yeah. Central Europe, um, they often had uh, a castle in the city and it was it was, the castle was for the prince. And right. the first things they did when they would overthrow the prince or the prince bishop or whatever was destroy the castle. And sometimes they left it as a ruin. Like if you go to uh, Turin in Poland, which was one of the free cities up there in the in the uh, Prussian Confederation that overthrew the, the Teutonic Order, they still have the ruins of the old Teutonic Knights castle mm -hmm. left it that way. It's just, mm -hmm. awesome. This is like, yeah, never again, you know, like. Yeah, uh, I think that's that's very interesting, and it seems to be also the role that in Venice they had the Council of Ten. They're, they seem to have been the right. most stable of all the Italian cities, right? And the Council of Ten uh, did make compromises, and they weren't un unreasonable, but they had total. They were the boss, and yeah, Venice. I mean, they brilliant electoral system. I mean, that was just amazing. They did, yeah. Ten guys nominate ten more guys who nominate ten more guys who nominate ten more guys and so on down the road yeah, they, they, until finally they pick. I mean, oh, geez. have yeah, the, it, right. They had, I think they had one big one where the oligarchs kind of got ahead of themselves a little bit and they tried to overthrow the Doge, um, the late fifteenth century. Um, the interesting thing about Bologna is that I mean it was very much class based the way that they. Um, Josh again. Come on, Josh. Hey, we're going to need new providers. Hi, there hey, he is. All right, there we go. It's back. Yeah. All right. It was just a, a lag there. So the interesting thing about Bologna is that, um, you know, it, it was very much a class-based uh, stratification of, like, two coalitions. So you had the Maltraversi, and then you had the Scarchese. And the Scarchese were um, primarily composed of the oligarchs, so... Um, and it was usually from the merchant guilds. So anybody that was actually selling a product or something like that. So you, it was the bankers, the lawyers, the cloth merchants, and the silk merchants. Where It'd be I, like the Popoli, for example. It was, yeah, the Popoli. And the, the Scarchese comes from the Popoli coat of arms. So it's it's the check oh. board of the Popoli coat of arms. It's where they get their name. It's called a Scarchese. Um, yeah, Scarchese, sorry. Yeah, you know, I suck with my pronunciations. I'm still learning it. Yeah. Um, but then the other one was the Maltraversi. So the Maltraversi were primarily composed of the lower guilds. So that's where, or the, um, sort of the, um, artisan guilds. And, uh, so they, they basically were, um, you would have like the butchers, the goldsmiths, the, the stonemasons, um, or I mean the, um, yeah, like a, various like craft guilds, right? And so one of the stipulations of becoming a noble in the city of Bologna is that you would have to have a prior noble, so either membership in the in a guild, like one of the the sort of the noble guilds, those four noble guilds, or you'd have to have a knight or a doctor in your family within the last thirty years. So those are kind of like the the societal like baselines to become a part of the nobility. But if you did or took on a manual craft at any point, you would be completely excluded from the noble guilds. So the Maltraversi were com primarily composed of the lower guilds and typically aligned themselves with the Pope, whereas uh, the Scarchese would, would 
Say it again, Stephen. <laughs> Scorchese, you said it right, man. Yeah, okay. All right, good. The Scorchese would basically align themselves with, um, a lot of times they would align themselves with the Visconti, and that was usually to, you know, their fault. I mean, history didn't really play out well for them every time they aligned themselves with the Visconti. <laughs> But they would align themselves with foreign powers because the members, like the the noble members of Bologna felt like if they were in the company of or constantly in communication with uh, various lords, dukes, marquises, whatever, um, that that would elevate their status, right? So one of the things that I've been writing about recently is um, with Giovanni I Bentivoglio, when he's having this big throwdown with the Gazzadini family, um, the Gazzadini like they, their coat of arms was actually the coat of arms of the Maltraversi. But at that, at this point, the Gazzadini were, they were bankers and they had kind of like elevated their own status. And one of the things that starts this whole like Bentivoglio takeover of the Bolognese government is that um, uh, Nani Gazzadini keeps inviting Niccolo Dieste to Bologna and like just having him in his house. And everybody gets super suspicious about this because they're like, who is this guy that's inviting a marquee of Ferrara to his house and kind of like playing these alliance games? Like this is this is highly suspicious. So the Maltraversi and the Scarchese actually unite against Nane Gazzadini, who they think is becoming too powerful. And that's what brings the Bentivoglio to power. It's a really, really crazy story. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it's there's definitely strong parallels a lot of the German cities, because they also used to have typically a two a two tier stratification, where you had the, uh, um, the you had the the artisans, and then you'd have the and and sort of the lower merchants, and some of the professionals and stuff would be in like one strata, and then you'd have the long distance merchants, and some of the property owners, uh, and and also some usually certain artisans, although that depended a lot on the town, um, that would be in the upper strata, and some towns. Um, you know, uh, had a hybrid, and some some it was just it was just what they called the patriciate, and some it was just the more the artisans that were in charge. But one of the huge differences that in the in north of, north of the Alps, or even in the Alps, you know, in the Swiss Confederation, um, you didn't have nobles in the towns. So they, they the nobles were not trusted, and so they they were often banned. They weren't allowed in the town at all, and and some places they were really openly contemptuous of the nobility. And uh, they like, and this 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 lasted to the even to the early twentieth century. Several North German towns, like in Hamburg, uh, they used to have all these songs, you know, about how nobles are illiterate thieves. Don't keep <laughs> lots of uh, carnival satires that would show up where the, where the nobles are just you know bombastic and they're speaking bad Latin to impress everybody with how educated they are and. And they can't fight well, and and uh, you know, and this was a big thing also in Germany that they were having trouble because, and I think there's two models: the Mediterranean model, because you see this in Spain too, or in the Iberian polities, where there's sort of an urban nobility. You know, they made this like urban nobility that were a yeah. special case. They weren't really fully nobles out in the countryside that would be, you know, necessarily on the same level as some of the. Uh, Big major rural princes, but they were uh, they had their sure. status, and that and that's actually what Louis the Fourteenth copied eventually in France. He he ennobled some of the wealthier merchants in Paris, basically just to, and and Lyon, I think Montpellier, and a couple other cities, just so that the rural nobility couldn't keep interfering in their businesses because he was trying to build up the economy because he was competing with Venice, <laughs> and uh, 
he was trying to figure it out. And so like a lot of, we actually have some strong mythology that has come down to us in our modern economic theories, like the idea of laissez-faire capital mm -hmm. comes from this thing where representatives of Louis XIV meeting with, with merchants in Paris, and they said, what do you want us to do? Who, whose leg do you want us to break so that you can start making textiles and glass and arms that we don't, so we don't have to buy it from Venice? We want you to do it as well as the Venetians are doing. And they said, uh, uh, laissez-nous faire, like, let us do it, which meant not no regulation. It meant, it meant, it meant the town regulating itself, which is what all the city-states did and all the free cities did. But right. the modern yeah. interpretation of that is like, no regulation, anything goes, which is absolutely not what it meant. Actually, they, all the medieval towns are kind of, have been described as hyper-regulated. But the difference right. is instead of being regulated, like it doesn't work if it's regulated from 100 miles away or, or 1,000 miles away. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the town itself is regulating and constantly changing everything to match the uh, circumstances. So it's- it Makes sense. You and um, you know, last time we, we had this, we, we were doing the interview and, uh, uh, before we were talking about guilds and I was trying to think of a correct analogy, a modern analogy, or what a, uh, a craft guild looked like in the nor northern half of Europe, let's say, you know, north of the Alps and the east. Oh, Ryan. And the uh, best modern analogy I could think of, there's a few, you know, you have, we have the professional associations like the uh, bar associations for attorneys and the AMA mm -hmm. for the AMA, yeah. Stuff. They're a little bit similar, but they're different. And doctors and lawyers were different in the Middle Ages too because they were university educated. Mm -hmm. But uh, one I thought of was potty. Either of you guys do scuba? Brr. Do any kind of diet? I do, yeah. So you know what potty is? Of course, yeah. And that is a pretty good, potty is a pretty good analogy for a craft organization that would be called a guild in the United States. In Europe, the ac academics tend to call these just crafts. But so if you're a weaver or goldsmith or cutler, armor or whatever, there's a craft association. It's kind of like potty because it's like what potty had to do is make sure that before people go scuba diving, they know how to do it because scuba diving will kill you if you don't do it. So like they certify people that are, that means that they actually know how to do it both for recreational and commercial, what would be relevant here is the commercial diving. So if you're a hard hat diver or something, you have to get a potty certification. Right. So that means that you know how to do it. So that, that is actually what craft guilds would do. They craft guilds were, in charge of training, so making sure that you know they had this apprenticeship system that would have, and, and the journeyman system that would uh, put you through what you needed to learn, and the processes that would sort of temper you and turn you into a responsible worker. And then they would do some quality control, but it wasn't the 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 basic rule of the the craft or like the artisan guilds was not necessarily political. Those were separate organizations that could be tricky. Uh, you know, to quantify. So, like, th those are a little bit more like in, in our lifetime in the U.S., something more like Shriners Clubs or Elf Clubs or Masonic Clubs, something like that. So that's the social guild, mm -hmm. all different kinds of those. Some of those were, like, fencing, and some of them were for religious reasons, carnival, and some of those were very political in the town. But if you were a weaver, you had to be, you had to get your patty certification. You had to be in the craft. You did not necessarily have to be in the guild. Some towns required it. Many didn't. And in many cases, depending on what job you did, if it was wow. prominent in that town or not, you may not be allowed to. Uh, and you'll find that in the German and Slavic, uh, and, you know, Norse, Flemish, et cetera, towns, uh, Dutch, all that. Right. A lot of times, even in the, in the trading cities, the ones that were on the coasts, where most of the money was being made by trade, 
the mercury. When they're further in the interior, the artisans are more powerful. But even in the even in the trading cities, there's usually a couple of guilds, perhaps partisan guilds, that were so powerful, so well connected that they were part of that elite. And one of them we had discussed this briefly last time: butchers. For some reason, are often up in there. Uh, goldsmith. Goldsmith was somebody. If you were a goldsmith, and apparently you could become a goldsmith by starting out as some other kind of metalwork, cutler or something like that. Goldsmiths rubbed elbows with very rich people, including all the princes and stuff, and they had a lot of social mobility. Um, and you know, butchers always prominent in the militias. They were often yeah. merchants on the side of the alliance. You know, even in towns where the most of the crafts had been put down, like in Nuremberg. And uh, yeah, so that's that's the I think that's one of the main differences, you know. And then the the merchants also had their guilds, and those were mostly a for basic regulation and insurance because they were going on boat trips all the time. In Italy, they developed a little bit more sophisticated systems for that. They had uh, actual insurance and what they call commenda contracts. Yeah, about that. No, I've never heard. Of a commenda contract. So they, the Italians developed very sophisticated law around trade. So a commander contract would be like where you will buy a portion or percentage of a ship voyage, and you might also buy a portion or percentage of a ship. So maybe you, you know the, you have the uh, you know the Bolognese, you know galley, mm-hmm. sure is is going on a trip, uh, you know mm-hmm. down down to uh, some town to Toulon in France, let's say, and and. You know that you have a sense of what the risk is. They would have actuary tables and like, well, how many how many have we lost on this route before? What are the current circumstances? And that, so that you don't go broke if the ship sinks, you get you'd recruit ten or fifteen other people to buy shares. And uh, and that's so like just another way of pooling risk, like a corporation or insurance. Yeah, yeah. And that the very the very first reason for guild was for insurance to pay for your those orphans. Uh, you know, for your business partners and stuff. It got more complicated. Originally, it was widows and orphans it's to pay for the, your family if, you're safe, if your ship sunk, basically, or the pirates got you. Yeah, that's interesting. I've I've got an I've got an academic paper that's in my queue right now. That's about the dangers of traveling between cities. Um, I don't have enough information on it yet, but I do know. <laughs> I'm assuming that there were lots of dangers between cities. Yeah, that's another thing where, you know, I think we had talked before about a little bit about scaled violence. And, um, you know, I originally was, was learning about that from Professor Tlusty. In towns, I was sort of thinking it was an urban phenomenon, but it seems to be a thing with bandits too, bandits and robber knights and so on. So your chances of getting accosted by bandits traveling was pretty high, uh, especially in Central Europe, but I think in Italy too. And it seems even more so in France. Like I did a detailed paper on uh, Benvenuto Cellini's autobiography, which is mm-hmm. hilarious, by the way. He killed about seven people. Wait, Don Cellini did? Uh, no, Benvenuto Cellini, the guy. Oh, Benvenuto Cellini, yeah. Okay, yeah, the guy who did the famous uh, Perseus uh, statue. That's Right, who wrote the autobiography. Yes, he wrote a memoir. And I, what I did was I looked at all the fights in the memoir, compared them to different fencing manuals, you know, and what, what, the, what the techniques were and all that. And when he went into France, he started working for the French king, and it got zany. I mean, it was just constant, constant violence. And it seems like the, you know, the principalities, the, you know, the, the kingdoms were less well-regulated than some of the urban areas. Like when he was in the, the, the district of the Duke of Milan, the problem was that he kept getting angry at people and wanting to pull his sword out. And everybody was saying, dude, 
don't pull your cord out here. You'll, you'll go to the hell. I don't, doesn't matter who you are. And he's, I don't care. I'm friends with the Pope. You know, like, you better not. You're going to, you're going to regret it. And, uh, whereas in France, it was just like, yeah, expect to be attacked. But even if you were robbed, you weren't necessarily killed. Well, I think, uh, to Lucy, she kind of touches on a little bit too, like the, how, like there were, there were different cultural applications to kind of mitigate feuding, right? Like that's kind of one of the core pieces of her thesis. Um, and it's clear, like, especially in Bologna and in Florence, that feuding was a big problem, like leading up to the 14th century, uh, well, into the 14th century, like coming to the turn of the 15th century, feuding was a massive problem that everybody had to solve. And it seems like weapons laws in most Italian cities were much stricter. And to kind of mitigate that to, you know, like if you don't have an armed population and there's a chance that your population could potentially come out under attack from, you know, an outside power is they just started telling like military forces in Condottieri that they had to stay outside the city. And then another thing that they did in Bologna is that if you were a soldier in Bologna, you could not be a voting citizen. You were that was that was really interesting right because they didn't want the you know if you're going to arm your population and you're going to take a whole bunch of people who you know might not necessarily or might be looking to elevate their status um we don't want them to kind of like hijack the government yeah that was that is another one of the key differences i think between sort of central europe versus italy uh which is that in in the towns under german town law so that's another to make is that the Germans had this sort of, they had this system where they, oh, they had a system of founding cities and they would copy the charters, the town charters from one town to the other. So Lübeck, for example, their charter was copied like 35 times for all these other cities all over uh, East Central Europe and all around Scandinavia and uh, up around the Baltic and, and even places in, in the British Isles and stuff. Uh, and then maybe later it gets edited. But they had this very strange thing where they would copy and then if you had a dispute that you couldn't figure out the answer, legal dispute that you couldn't figure out the answer to in your town law, they, you would appeal to the, the older city that you got your charter from. So whatever copy it was, even if it might be a smaller and less significant town, you'd send people over there. It's like, well, what do we do in this case? But the Germans uh, and the Poles and Czechs and so on, like, they, yeah, they, they, the citizens were armed and they did not really allow professionals they might have 10 or 15 professional guards in the city to just to do the most heel and annoying guard work, like standing at the gate and take, you know, checking the tolls, whatever. But they, they, uh, they made the militia do that, and the militia hated it. And I think, hmm. I think the, Italian, the Italian cities had all that as well, uh, if you go back, you know, a couple hundred years before, you know, if you go back into the 13th, 14th century, they were like that too. But then all the fighting they did for so long, they just got sick of it, I think. No. So that's they started leaning more toward the condottieri, whereas the um, the German towns uh, and the you know Czech and so on, they just they saw what had happened to some of the Italian towns and they did they it happened up there too. So they didn't they didn't trust the professionals. And then they also had this other thing we could, we can get back to later, which is something called the recess, because they had they had these feuds, but I would say that in Germanic law the the, the emphasis on stopping feuds was enormous. You can read this in, in uh, this is in the Norse sagas too. There's so many things that are put in place to try to sort of derail feuds and mm -hmm. you know, the paying of guild and all that kind of stuff. 
But um, so in the German, German, Germanic towns, they always had the nobles just outside the walls. Mm -hmm. They knew that if they kept fighting too much, uh, they could lose their autonomy. And that happened sometimes. That happened in some places. That's why, uh, you know, when uh, Gutenberg created the printing press, he had to leave town because it was Mainz. And the, the archbishop took advantage of a dispute going on in Mainz and took over, killed a couple mm -hmm. hundred people and exiled many more after stealing their stuff. And by the way, if you ever go to Mainz, it's a fascinating town. It's like partly Roman city, partly evil, and there's all these really mean-looking bishop statues everywhere. <laughs> yeah, the full bishop. I actually I wrote a pretty in-depth piece on the the Mainz study session feud because it was important to kind of like try to get that picture. But you talk about the kind of the mobility of goldsmiths. I think that Gutenberg was also a, a goldsmith, wasn't he? Didn't right. Kind of yeah. make that transition, and that's how he learned how to tool. That's right. His key innovation was the metal because they had they were already doing mm -hmm. press printing. Actually, the, the the wood block printing and all that was already going on for a hundred years by the time he made his press. And you have some examples of, that are kind of similar in like Korea too, where they were making it. I think maybe China as well. But the big innovation of of Gutenberg was that he made the metal uh, fonts. You know, you have all these little these little letters. And uh, I mean, have you ever seen one that really interesting? Like you can see all these fonts that you read, see on your computer. It, are each one of those is a huge tray of all these little dies. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And 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 they, those were malleable enough that you could make it whatever shape you wanted, really easily and precise, but sturdy and and uh, durable enough that you could print over and over and over again, and they wouldn't wear out. So that was the yeah. that was quite a needle to thread, and and that was his big innovation. Yeah, that and his inks as well, where they would, um, you could basically stamp into the ink. You wouldn't have to like constantly reapply ink. I think you could go, like, um, because of the tactile nature of the ink, um, think of almost like a ballpoint pen, right? Like, you know, a ballpoint pen is constantly rolling through that ink bed that's just kind of filling onto it. But if you ever like kind of like get too much ink onto the ball of a ballpoint pen, it's kind of sticky. Like, that's kind of similar of how he was able to kind of concoct his ink where it was sticky enough that like it would still stay stuck on the copper tooling of the the letters and so they could print multiple pieces so you don't have to sit there and constantly reapply ink you you can probably stamp like 10 pages before you have to reapply ink and you see did he invent that ink or was that already he did yeah yeah that was one of his big innovations that's yeah yeah i didn't i didn't know that i know that basically all of his Secrets was read by a person couple of partners. Well, so he got he got sued by Johann Fust and um, Peter Schoffer, who were his business partners. And then Schoffer ended up marrying Fust's daughter, so it was kind of an inside job. And then the the diocesan feud happens. Um, uh, Adolf von Nassau ends up becoming the archbishop. Um, then Adolf von Nassau ends up getting involved in the Bavarian War. He loses a battle, and then um, uh, Dieter von Eisenberg, I think it is, uh, ends up becoming the, the Archbishop of Mainz again. Everything's good, but then um, I think it's the Count Palatine ends up ransoming um, Adolf von Nassau, and then Adolf von Nassau comes back into Mainz, um, and basically, like, he has a whole bunch of people meet him at the gate. They let him in the gate. He comes in with, like, 500 men. They had a huge street battle in Mainz. Um, he ends up slaughtering all the people that are fighting against him. And then he calls all the people of Mainz to him, and he's like, he's really upset because he feels like, you know, he was supposed to be the archbishop, and 
You know, there's a lot of politics that go into it, but then he tells them that he's going to reconcile with them. And then everybody that comes, uh, he's like, if you supported Dieter von Eisenberg, then I want you to meet me in the town square. And like 800 people show up, right? And so all 800 people, the moment they kind of like settle in and he starts speaking, he's like, get out of mites and never come back. Um, and, that was- and, and that was his way of kind of luring them in. Um, but the thing is, is like, if you look at the history of printing, like um, uh, the the two, I can't remember their name off the top of my head, but the two uh, German guys that ended up uh, really kind of st- setting up the first printing press in Italy using Gutenberg's technology, um, both of them came from Mites. So they were probably either apprentices of Gutenberg or uh, Schoeffer after they had sued. Yeah. Well, they yeah no they they were they were exiles. They were exiles from Mites. Like they had been exiled in that whole like diocesan feud. So like that the diocesan feud basically causes not only like the spreading of the printing press, but it also causes the this is kind of the one of the conclusions that I'm gonna draw in this long piece that I've been working on, but it actually also causes the Protestant Reformation because so many of the people who went out and started printing, if you look at a lot of their early works. They went and they started looking at like, um, you know, um, uh, the words escaping me at the moment, but um, like ecclesiastical works from like anti-popes and things like that. People who were always critical of the church and, and publishing those things. And so like there's this like real resentment that you see from early printing presses from people who were fleeing minds and for were sort of these political refugees of this excess of the church. Um, because Mainz was a free city. And one of the things that, uh, um, Dieter von Eisenberg had promised the people of Mainz is that they would actually have a say in the, in the conduct of the government. And so when Adolf von Nassau came in with this authoritarian, authoritative bent that was like, I'm going to bend my knee to Frederick and I'm going to bend my knee to the Pope. They were like, dude, this, this sucks. Like, why would we want to, we don't want that. I think that, I I think that's slightly oversimplifying matters because that, that well, it, it is for sure already really deep, and and you already had the you know, you had the uh, the Hussites in Bohemia who were their uprising was fourteen twenty, and they had they had uh, thrown out all the Catholics, really all the all the I'm not all the all the Catholics, but all the the prelates, all the all the the bishops, yeah. archbishops, and abbots, and everything. They were gone already, and in fact, when when the you know the Catholic Crusaders went in, uh, the uh, under Sigismund, you know he he. He pawned all the rest of them that were still all the you know all the all the archbishoprics and everything that were still intact. He pawned them so he could raise armies. You know, <laughs> so they were they were cleaned out. And if you look, I just sent you a link. If you look at the map of the Incunabla, which is all the things, all the printed books before 1500. So it's like basically between 1450 and 1500. It's astonishing how many of them there are. And one pattern that I've discovered. On this, this whole, this whole thing is really a deep, you know, it's a deep dive. Uh, is that it comes? There's a there's a pre a, a precursor of this, which is the paper mills, which come from Italy. And there's a story. So supposedly, the first the first proven paper mill that we know north of the Alps is in Nuremberg, in 1396, and it's a there's a patrician family there called the Stromer, and they do a lot of business with Venice. They they were actually uh, sort of adjacent to some of the conflicts that Hans Talhofer was, you know, where Hans Talhofer killed a 
build a robber knight, got in trouble. That had to do with trade between Nuremberg and Venice uh, that had been interrupted uh, because of a feud with the emperor. Uh, anyway, but uh, Stromers had been buying paper from Venice. The Italians were making all the paper, and they were shipping it over across the Alps or you know around the coasts and stuff, and it, obviously very expensive to ship anything heavy across the Alps. So Stromer sent some people down to Venice and the story I read in a 19th century book, so I don't know if this part is true, but it's just the story I read about it, was that the Stromer people were in Venice. The Council of Ten was notified that these Germans are looking for how to make a paper mill. They want to they want to steal the technology. How should we kill them? Should we drown them? Should we poison <laughs> Yeah, right. And the Council of Ten says, well, I mean, throat cutting, drowning, those sound good, but we do a lot of business with Nuremberg. We do a lot of business with the Stromers. And this is like the fourth time that people have been snooping around trying to steal paper mill technology. Uh, you know, this time maybe let's let them live and we'll sell it to them because it's going to get out anyway. Let's make a business out of selling it. So they, the, if you look at the Nuremberg Chronicle, there's a paint, it's a, they call it a map, but it's a, it's a sort of panoramic painting of Nuremberg. And on the bottom right outside of town, there's this there's this complex of buildings on the river, and that's the Stromer paper mill because they paper mills, if you've ever been around one, they stink. But yep. if you look at that big map of all the incunabla, especially the big, the, the, the big the big circles, which is where they had a lot of them, where they, yep. they printed a lot of them, all of those towns were towns with big time paper mill operations already. Yeah. So I I'm gonna add a little bit of an observation here too, because this yeah. is something that I kind of came to the conclusion of with like post post diocesan feud. Is there you can also kind of trace um, a lot of the the spread, especially the early spread before perhaps it kind of like followed that paper mill run of it following wine and wine trade because you readily had wine presses available and you see like the spread really happen across the Rhine. So you see like Lorraine, um, Milan, all over like all over Italy, parts of uh, of uh, of Spain where there was a lot of like grape growing and things like that. So where you had wine presses, you see like the initial spread. So like those black dots and like the, I can post this on the show notes so people can see what the heck we're talking about. Um, but like the, the, those early dot colors or like the blue dots, a lot of times like they follow the wine presses and then maybe it kind of expanded out from there with the, the paper mills. Well, yeah, sure. Wine press. Yeah. That, that, that lends itself because the thing is that the, 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 the paper mill thing happened about a hundred years or well, it happened about, 50 years, although we don't, we, there may have been earlier ones because there's some presses that we don't know if they're, if they're oil presses or wine presses. Some people say they were paper mills, actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, stamping mills, you know. Uh, but but uh, the, the interesting thing for HEMA people is that a lot of these towns that were major uh, printing centers and had the paper mills very early, like Nuremberg, Augsburg, Strasbourg, Venice, yeah. Brescia, Milan, Rome, Bologna. Yeah. Uh, those these were uh, centers. Of, this is where we have fencing mills coming out of, and and there were there were mm -hmm. centers of all kinds of literature. Um, I know that in Nuremberg specifically, um, that's where not only were they did they they become a take off as a printing center very very early, but that was also where Albrecht Dürer and um, uh, Martin Schongauer and a couple of these other guys that were painters that had been more or less. Uh, at the at the mercy of prelate, so the prelate says, "Hey, come pay me a triptych of the Virgin Mary doing whatever." And the guy works on it for four years, and then he brings it there, and then maybe the guy pays him, maybe he doesn't, and he's like, "Yeah, I'll pay you ten percent now, and then the rest, you know, later or something." These guys were sick of that, and so they went looked at the 
they looked at the uh, paper and they said, well, we can do these woodblock prints. Woodblock prints are a little bit crude. So they figured out how to do the metal print blocks. So that so they, they copper plate engraving and they dry point engraving. And there's one other one I forget. But so Nuremberg was already in the early 1400s, was already producing all these uh, playing cards and uh, all kinds, like there's like erotica and political satire. There's a lot of anti-church stuff. Uh, that's already very popular with the early block printing. Um, and then uh, some of the playing cards in particular are really cool. I really like all those. And there's a whole sec separate version of that in Italy. Uh, but, um, and then... You know, Durer and Schongauer, Durer, by the way, his family were goldsmiths. Uh, they they, they um, figured out, you know, how to do this copper plate engraving. So instead of sending, selling one beautiful painting to a bishop who may or may not pay you the 4,000 gulden that he promised, you can sell, you can make a wonderful engraving and then sell it 5,000 times for, you know, for five gulden to all kinds of middle class people all over the place, you know, and they, yeah. and they were everywhere. Everybody had these. That was who they were for. You know, that's one of the big, you know, sort of mysteries. Like one of the tropes about the Middle Ages is like one of my favorite ones is like, oh yeah, they drank they drank beer because the water was too dirty, and they they bought all those spices and pepper because the food was rotten. Well, a to make beer, you have to have really clean water. Yeah. And and b you cannot you just put walls spices, and rotten rotten food. You'll just die. It was the middle class. It was there, there was a huge. Yeah sort of middling level of society that bought all this stuff. And that's what those people yeah. figured out. And that was who they were making the books for. You know, it was for rich people too, but the big money really was in the broad sort of urban classes and also some of these, you know, sort of rural yeomanship, you know, this sort of middling level uh, gentry and stuff in the country that would buy all these things and buy the house books and stuff. Uh, yeah. And that's also why we find to, rather mysteriously that, all these fencing uh, masters seem to have known about all so many of the other fight books. Like they, they, you'll see that they were constantly referring to other fight books. Like how the hell does he know about that? It's from this other part of Europe and blah. Well, it's because copies of these things are being made everywhere. And the towns that got the printing presses also had the scriptoria. So there was already an industry there where they were making books the you know, the, by copying them the hard way. And then those got into printing too, you know, a lot of the scriptoria. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely one of those deep, deep tunnels. I did my that's what that's what a podcast is for, right? Right. For we can go as long as we want. We can go down all these rabbit holes. That was fascinating to me. I loved it. So I mean, I did a, I did a little article on Rar on Roger Norling's Rar thing, where it was like uh, liter literacy and fencing or something like that. And I it started it off as a kind of as a joke, which irritated some people. But I did a Venn diagram: people who fence people who can read and the cross-section of that is like that's your group of people who are being targeted for fencing books you know right, <laughs> right. or who are interested in fencing you know but maybe they don't fence but they're just they're just interested you know but uh and then so figuring out the literacy aspect of that is, is really uh that was very important to me to try to understand and get my head around and I find out that it is fiendishly complicated as you could just see from that wonderful map of the, the Incunabla. Yep. And, no, and all this, sure. this this religious stuff that, that you know, there's another thing, these statues of Roland, you know, the guy from the Charlemagne mm -hmm. yep. uh, story. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they would, those statues were put up as symbols of resistance to the church, which usually meant not so much the church writ large, 
as the local bishop or archbishop or abbot or something. And they would, so they have these little statues of Roland. And one of the key examples of that was in Bremen, where they got taken over briefly by their bishop as well. And the city council was in exile for for a bit, but they they managed to get out of town with all their money. So they had all the, like the the city revenue, they had all the the, the lock boxes of gold. And what they started doing was they started loaning money secretly through through intermediaries to the bishop, and um, encouraging him to get become more and more of a drunk and and a, and a, <laughs> they were sending prostitutes to him and stuff. And then he was getting more strung out. And then he started pawning all his properties. And then they started buying all these castles and putting soldiers in them and everything. And then gradually they just sort of surrounded him after like 15 years. But the, the, the joke of it was that there was, they had a huge statue of Roland uh, that represented resistance to that guy. And, and in the town, the, the only way that the bishop could even enter the city was through the Aeus Episcopi, which was like this narrow gate. It was the bishop. And it was only like three feet wide. So he couldn't bring cavalry in when he came to the town. Right? <laughs> so they all have to come in one by one. Yep, that's all. Awesome. Uh, so, so eventually, like he he gets gout from heavy drinking and everything, and he's he's just like a mess, and he's sold everything, and they're like, well, guess who your creditor is? It's not who you thought. It's not you know the the kind Dominican guy that's been writing you letters about how it's great to hate the people. You know, it's us, and you're fired. And like you know, so they got rid of him, and then they built the stone statue of Roland that's still there, uh, and that has been supposedly the protector of the city, and it's been there continuously since the 1400s, except during World War II when they, they hid it from the Nazis, apparently. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was hidden in a basement, and it, supposedly they have a spare one, too, in case they need that. Uh, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. So, like, that, that whole bishop thing, you know? John, is there... Um, let's. Uh, I'm going to kind of direct this back to guilds. It, yeah. From, a like, a, an international and kind of regional... Or even like a local level, uh, how much communication was there generally between like various guilds? Like, because we've got an anecdote, right? We have one of uh, something that I had found a while ago. I was actually trying to find the original source for Stephen recently, and I couldn't find it. I need to, to look it up. Um, but one of um, Marazzo's students, Jacob Crafter, was a transport. Amp so he. Yeah, right. Craft. He was a transporter. So he was originally from Augsburg and he ended up probably at the University of Bologna in the German district. Um, and Marazzo, so I actually found this uh, through Jacopo Gelli the other day. I don't know. I haven't found anything to back it up. And that's kind of the problem with Gelli. But he actually said that Marazzo started out his first fencing teaching job was teaching Germans in Bologna. Who said at that? At the university. Oh, Gelli did? Gelli, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. But, I mean, it makes sense if, you know, Jacob Crafter was um, yeah. one of his students, right? So I just kind of, like, wanted to kind of piece that together, right? Like, I mean, so Kepo, you know, we have posing off him. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, we've got we've got this cross-out connection already, right? But we know that the Crafter family oftentimes was transporting goods from Bologna to... Um, like one of their big hubs was this transport network where they would transport goods between Bologna and Augsburg. So was there a lot of communication with like, would Jacob Crafter be able to walk into a wool merchant's guild or like a, a transporter's guild or whatever it would be that he might be involved in um, and kind of like show his pass 
<laughs> or something like that like how did that <laughs> right. how did that usually how did that work in at this yeah so that's that's on the level of the of the merchant guilds and the merchants by the time you're in that era so sort of our early 16th century you have a lot of these merchant companies um so there's there's a famous one that's been studied a lot although most mostly in german uh called the grand ravensburg brotherhood and that was like a, a trading company that was set up around um Constance uh city of Constance on on the lake mm -hmm. border with Switzerland. Yeah. But all over southern Germany and then they had out outposts in Italy in what's now Spain and and in parts of France and Flanders and everything. Uh so they would have arrangements. Yes. And it's it's not so much necessarily you're in the guild, you're not in the guild, but if you were known like you could show up and and be like, "Hey, I just got here. I'm from I just got here from Bologna and I haven't been here before, but I have some nice stuff. And then they would say, "Okay, well, you, you know, you'll need to register with the, with the, the guild, and and uh, and these are the rules you have to follow." The towns had something called the staple right. That was the that was kind of a weird thing. It's different from now, which is that if you're traveling from Bologna and you're trying to get up to say Basel or something like that, and you pass by some some of these little Swiss towns on the way, okay, because they're controlling the pass through there mostly. Uh, You'll have to stop in the town and take all your stuff out that you're trying to bring to Basel and offer it for sale in that town. That's the staple right. That's one of the rights that these cities had. Um, so there's a chance somebody could buy it from you, you know, off of you. But you, there's rules on what, how you're you're allowed to set the price and what percentage of your goods you have to offer for sale and for how long and everything. Um, but once you get to the town, you'll be following those rules of the market, and the merchants were pretty. Uh, friendly to each other, basically. And in a large city, if you were from it, coming from Italy, there would be an Italian colony. In fact, there'd be probably like there's going to be a Venetian and a Florentine and and a Genoese and and a couple of you know it'd be like a Lombard. It's it's just like with the colleges where you have the nations. You know, there's mm -hmm. yeah. so in a big mm -hmm. city like uh, Strasbourg, say, there's probably going to be two or three hundred Italian merchants just living there. And the vice versa is true as well. So in, in Bologna, you probably had. Because it's a university town, I mean, you can have, but you, you would have a couple yeah. hundred German merchants that are just there watching their stuff because they might have brought a big shipment in that's not going to all sell out immediately. So they've got uh, a house and they've got upstairs in the warehouse, they've just got a whole bunch of uh, fustian or linen or something that, that you know, they, they're not going to sell the rest of this until summer. So they're staying there and they're waiting, you know, or they're selling small amounts of it and they're in charge. So anyway, they, yeah, they had these arrangements. The, um, you know, the journeymen traveled by kind of by law. They they had to roam around. So, but that's more on the craft level, whereas the merchants, um, you know, were constantly, perpetually circulating. Usually right. they would have specific routes. Not always. Not all of them did. But a lot of them would be like, if you're in Strasbourg, there might be a, in the town itself, there might be in the guild hall, there's a bench of people that trade with Milan. And there's a bench of people that trade with maybe, you know, it might be a cluster of six or seven towns in in uh, Tuscany or something like that. So uh, that also was very much a thing. So, so yeah, the, 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 the merchants made things uh, convenient. And another thing would be that there would be letters of credit. So uh, one of the Italian banks, like the Monte di Pasci di Siena or the Bank of St. George of Genoa or, or the uh, Medici when they, were, when they were around, or the Bembo or, you know, whatever, like they, they could send a letter of credit so you don't have to carry money across the Yeah, yes, yeah. right. Um, and and then that would be redeemable by the Fugger Bank or somebody up up in the up in the German area. 
So yeah, they 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 had it smoothed it out very well. The Italians were particularly good at that, and they they had books that that described like everything you had to do, you know, for the longer trips, including all the way down the Silk Road, all the way to China. Every single mm-hmm. person you're likely to have to bribe. What what are, you know? What are the taxes and fees in every single place? Even down to crazy things like certain parts of Kazakhstan, you know, like the Mongols. No kidding. Yeah, the, the, there's a genre of, of of literature called the Pratica della Mercatura, and they, these are these guides that like they actually have like riddles the Mongols might ask you and what the answers are. <laughs> that, that sounds amazing. Uh, don't give me that riddle. Oh my god! It, 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 yeah. <laughs> It's they're amazing, and and there's there's some of them are are translated. Uh, trying to trying to find some exa- There's some really funny little quotes from it out there. Practice. There's one of them that and you move from. That's from Florence. That's partially translated, and uh, you know it's it has stuff like like, oh, if you're selling uh, sturgeon eggs, you know sturgeon caviar, they include the tear weight of the box, but not the bag or you know like when you're selling this you know uh sicilian wax they they you know they they pay they they uh they give you an extra percentage for you know this or that or you know it's mostly very prosaic but they get into they've got like dictionaries so like italian to cumin or italian to uh you know farsi stuff like keywords that you need for trading and all that i mean it's just just amazing genre that's that's awesome have you ever heard of Ludovico de uh, Verathma uh-uh. or Varthima? Varthima, I think is that's how you pronounce it. Uh, he's he's a uh, Bolognese explorer in the late 15th century that made it all the way out to the Mylite archipelago, and then he comes back and he makes it to um, uh, somewhere in India, one of the big ports, and basically. He's about to leave, or he he gets captured by these Persians that are out there, and then he flees, he gets away, he gets to the Portuguese, and he's about to leave on this Portuguese ship, and then he's told, no, you can't leave, and then there's this massive sea battle that happens between, like, uh, Ottoman Corsairs and this huge uh, Portuguese fleet. And he has, like, this really amazing documentation of this, like, big sea battle that happens between these Portuguese and these pirates. And then he manages to make it back home and gets back to Bologna. Oh, I love those kind. And, and, and in 1508, he publishes uh, that book. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry. That, that, yeah, that, that's another rabbit hole. I have a whole bunch of those, like, uh, crazy ex- uh, Yeah. One of the guys, one of them, Pratica della Mercatura guys, is called Francesco Balducci Peg. Pegliotti. Heard of him? Huh. Uh, I'm going to read you this slide. This is just a list of things that they would trade for in China. Wax, tin, copper, cotton, madder, cheese, flax, and oil. Uh, foxes, sables, finches, and martens, wool skins. Uh, Latin wines sold by the cask. Malmsey and wines of Triclia and Candia sold by the measure. Caviar sold by the fusco, which is the tail half of the fish's skin. Suet in jars, iron of every kind, raisins of every kind, and the mats go as raisins with no alla- no allowance for tear weight. <laughs> like, <laughs> so random. I think you tell you need to know. So uh, yeah, you know, this one type of soap they they sell it in a bag, and the other type is like cakes of the soap, and so like okay, uh, they make tear weight for the cases, but they buy it for nothing. The soap of cyber sack. 
They're like, you need to know all that stuff. Try to make that's amazing on the Silk Road, you know. And meanwhile, at the same time, there's places in Europe where they didn't even know if China really even existed. Right, right. Guys were like, yeah, yeah look, uh, they, they say, sure, yeah, it's it's made up, right? Whatever you, whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally not a real place, Mr. John. <laughs> yeah, we got all this nutmeg and, and bicarbonate, cardamom, and everything. So, in general, Sean, how did uh, guilds decide monopolies over certain things? So, like, if you were to take, like, a piece of equipment, let's say, like, a brigadine, uh, or brigandine, right, and you had many different trades that kind of went into it. You have cloth merchants, you have uh, metal workers, you've got, I don't know, coppersmiths. God knows how many different people are going to come into it because you got the rivets and everything like that. Um, eventually, a tailor is going to be the one who assembles it. So... Who's responsible for that individual quality? Is it just that that tailor is not going to do business with those smaller guilds or are they held responsible? I mean, if I'm out and I'm fighting in battle and all of a sudden one of my spalders falls off because, you know, I had a bad copper rivet or something like that, am I going to hold this coppersmith accountable or is this, uh, how did that usually work with, um, between guilds? Well, that's a complicated. When there's that level of cooperation. It, it is, so it would not necessarily be, that would not necessarily be controlled by the guild. The guild would inspect goods that were under their purview. So if you, mm -hmm. if, if your guild for whatever, whichever one of those things that your guild was, whether it was a textiles guild or, or metalworks, armors, whoever in whatever town had the right to sell that kind of armor, um, that, that craft organization, which again, is more like potty. Like it's not, this isn't necessarily like a strong organization that is like heavily enforcing a lot of rules it's there but they are going to do a quality inspection they would do quality so like in augsburg for example there were 17 different grades of bread and they would make sure that you didn't put there's all kinds of things you couldn't put in bread you couldn't put sawdust in it you couldn't you couldn't you know all the things that we put in stuff now that you can, in the bread you buy at walmart they was banned chalk in it probably so they they would test to see and like in italy they in for armor they would actually shoot it that's where the proofing right originally with crossbows and then with guns so they they had the uh i know that it was like the palisti piccolo and the palisti largo or something in venice where they they would shoot armor the crop mark the dents so that was part of the guild's job was to test it and they would send inspectors and everything and they, a lot of it's also like are you making your journeyman work on sunday uh you know are you are you buying stuff from you know illegal venues or whatever okay but in each individual town, we find that there's these networks that are created between big and small crafts, and it really depends on the rules. Uh, so you'd have little clusters. Like I, I did read a detailed article about cutlers, where it described how a particular cutler, who was a he was like a, a prominent cutler that had moved up through the ranks. So he was a contractor basically. So what he would do is he would go to another craft that made uh, that was like a metalworking craft, and he would get sword blanks. He'd buy, I need to get 100 sword blanks and he'd get the sword blanks. And then he'd take those, uh, he would make a design, and then he would make the, send those to a, another cutler who would then make those into blades. Hmm. And then he'd take, get the blades back. Uh, they would send them to a, a different cutler who would do the heat treatment. And then hmm. he gets them back again, and he sends them to a guy that does the hilts and a guy that does, there's two, there was one guy that did the sharpening and another guy that did the polishing, which was two different people, workshops. And then another guy that made the scabbards. And then he goes to whoever placed the order and says, okay, here's your hundred sword. And so 
part of the thing with the crafts was that the guy that really knew his business could, so if you're, let's say you're a mason and they mm -hmm. build a house and I'm paying you uh, basically a, a wage, like for every day that you're working on this building, this, this stone house, I'm paying you per worker, you know, 10, 10 denarii or something. And if he shows up with two, two apprentices and a journeyman, you're going to pay him for as if there's four of him because he makes sure that the quality of their work meets his standard. And if it doesn't, Interesting. him a crappy reputation. So in the case of the contractor, that's the guy whose proven ability is that when he makes a hundred swords, they are of the quality that the one guy who does everything, which also existed, there were some people that just tried to do everything themselves, but that takes them six months to make one sword or something. It's the same quality. So, so, and so the, and of course, the guy who's making the sword blanks and the guys who are doing the polishing, the sharpening and everything, and the guy who's making the blanks into blades, they're using a lot of machinery, which might be owned by the guild or it might be owned by the workshop. So they've got water-powered mills. And right. the, you can actually see some videos of this. Great. Fascinating. Yeah, so that really speeds up. Sure those. The, the, you, know, you know, like several of the Italian towns were able to produce enormous amounts of armor uh, yeah. and weapons. And so were like towns like Augsburg um, because they got very efficient at it. They got very efficient. They worked, worked out the economies of scale. So, but I think it's, it varied by town. So one of the things was like some towns would allow merchants into the guilds, would not into the craft hmm. uh, Interesting. would allow certain kinds of subcontracting, but not other. And they would always work around it ways. So, and a lot of the town, a lot of the towns, like in a, in your workshop, like you'll notice if, you, if you've been to Italy, in the old medieval parts of town, you'll see the workshops are open to the street. You ever notice that? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. There's like a front door that you can see what they're doing. That's old guild regulations. They're really into transparency, both in the literal and figurative sense. So like you, one of my happiest moments in Italy once was in Florence and I was standing around waiting to get, get coffee or something. And I was watching, I was just looking into this workshop where a guy was fixing violins and this lady walked in. And she picked up a violin. He, he, he had a big smile on his face. He handed her the violin, and he played a couple notes. He couldn't hear anything, but she had this huge smile on her face, and he had a big smile on her face. And I was like, he had this voyeuristic sense of, wow, look at this great ancient thing going on right here. Right. <clears throat> it's like the whole workshop's open. You can see all his tools and all his stuff back in there. Uh, I love That's it. Awesome. It's just a beautiful feeling. And, and, yeah, so they were set up that way. And there's lots of oversight because the town doesn't want to get a bad reputation for selling crap stuff. That right. that happened right. with Lido centuries or great and then over you know, out in the Pacific somewhere. Uh, so if you get that kind of reputation, they don't enforce a monopoly where they get to control who buys the stuff. So like, you know, if, if Augsburg is selling bad brigandines, you know, go to Nuremberg, Brescia. Right. You're going to go somewhere else for sure. And that happened very, very quickly. So that's their, that's their motivation. And they don't want to hassle each other too much over how they're doing their business. So, because then, you know, yeah, it's, it's north of the Alps. Everybody's armed. Trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And that makes sense why they have to regulate it too, because it's, you know, it's the value of all the merchants in that city. Like that's their yep. brand, their product. That's right. And in the, in the, in the industry, like there was a, I read a story about how bakers got caught putting some, all, adulterating the bread in some town. And, and then they, they got put in the back of the All Saints Day parade. And I think they got taken out of the parade. Oh. So then they went on strike and they wouldn't bake any bread in the town. So all the bread that everybody ate had to be 
imported, so it was stale for like five years. They finally like they finally like worked it out somehow, and they got back in the in the the parade, which is like also <laughs> the parade. These these parades on the different saints' days and on Carnival are kind of like the provocative parades that would happen in like Northern Ireland, where there's like sectarian aspects to it. Right, <laughs> out there with their like in Krakow. Every time there's a new king, all the crafts apparently would go marching down the you know the main road with their swords drawn, and they're saluting the king. Yay, yay, king! And by the way, before you're fully settled in and being a king, these are our traditional craft rights for our craft, and you need to sign off on them. Or standing sword. You see your your guards, you know, your cavalry over there. They're tough, and we'll fight to the death. Right. Not that naked force was always, you know, needed, but that, but there were these these moments where it would be it would be demonstrated, and, and that's another thing I think is really fascinating. Survivals of like, you know, the the polio, the, the horse. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, yep, in Siena. They do this wonderful procession. I've never been in pro in person, but I've seen it in videos. Like they do the, the medieval procession where they literally are out there with halberds and the, they have the. What do they call the cart? The Italians, what they would have the standard. They have an ox cart with the standard on it. That like, oh, the caracciolo or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they they have that thing, and uh, I just love all that. And and because you know, in the, in the palio, it's all the it's all the neighborhoods, which corresponds mm-hmm. to some extent to the different crafts that business. You know, that each neighborhood would have like different um, you know industries in them traditionally, and um, they have all these rivalries. You know, so the guys that are do, making the sword blanks. May not like the cutler contractor guy, you know, who's in the na- nicer neighborhood, uh, or they or they may not like the guys that make the the scabbards, you know, or something, you know, like maybe they right. uh, have a weird, you know, relationship with the guys that make the hilts that buy all their race skin, you know. So they're rooting for different horses, and the, and the other thing I love about the palio is that on purpose, there's not every horse is good, and and so you get you get the horses randomly for each neighborhood. So if your neighborhood gets one of the not so good horses, then your job isn't to win because you can't that year. It starts to take out. Take your rival out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's really that's so Italians. I'm not gonna win, but I'm not gonna be people. That's so many. They put in the German and Czech towns too. The same exact uh, exactly like that. What they would stop short of, then you know, it escalating into vendettas. They, they seem to be able to sweep the leg. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right. They and all every town, all these medieval towns where they still have the the traditions, they have these totally insane medieval sports around. Like, you ever seen water jousting? They have a bunch of these French. Towns. No, that sounds awesome. Yeah, they get on boats and they row toward each other, and a guy goes in the prow. Like I was showing my wife all these all these uh, weird medieval sports like that at. She was not impressed because they cut, they're going by like five miles an hour, you know. When they knock each other, they have a, they have a, they have like a big old lance, you know, that's got like a little padding on the tip or something. But you're so inexorably they're coming at each other and they knock each other off the boat. And I found maps from Poland from the 14th century that have this like a little Easter egg, like look, they're water jousting. There it is, right there. <laughs> but they, these weird things. Oh man. Too, and that was a way to get rid of, you know, like the the all the like the stick fighting in Venice and all these other towns and everything. That's a way to get some of the tension out, and you know, I guess it's like do sports. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. You're you're gonna have to send me the uh, water jousting thing because yeah, that's... oh yeah, I'll send it to you right now. There's some, so we um <clears throat> one of the things that we have available to us for our event Oktoberfest is a giant Olympic size swimming pool. 
Yeah, dude, you should do it. Yeah. We have a pool. And I think, <laughs> yeah, there's a pool. So I think that we should do some water just. <laughs> All right. It's so awesome. Yeah, I think you absolutely should do it, man. It, it's, it looks hilarious. And like I said, my wife, uh, she was like, those guys, those guys are old and fat. I'm like, you act like that's bad. It's not like the the Palio and Siena where they're just like these sexy, so they're on the bareback on the horse and all the all the beautiful women singing their song, the the neighborhood songs and everything. You know, like that's a much more sort of James Bond movie kind of scene. But all these other ones are great too, and I you know, I mean, yeah, Running of the Bulls is one of those things. It's like all these these are all part of. Create social cohesion through managed chaos. And I'm from New Orleans, so we still we still have carnival here. So I totally get that that whole thing. Like we a lot yeah. of crazy stuff goes on in carnival, and some of it's quite organized. And uh, there's you know it's the it's the Saturnalia. It's like the ruler becomes the ruled, and vice versa. And uh, you know it's extremely cathartic. You know, really. Yeah. Of course, if you're not ready for it, it's totally. Cool. <laughs> you brought up something that you you brought up something that's really interesting, John. Kids, I think I I'm I'm still trying to figure out like the districts in Bologna, but through a lot of the research that I've been doing lately, I've started to notice that guilds had certain districts. Um, so especially trying to like figure out, okay, I know where I know specifically where Darty was at, like when he was in Bologna and he was teaching fencing. I know. Where De Luca lived, he was in the parish of Santa Maria della Muratella, I believe. Um, and then, you know, like just the other day, I came across something in uh, Giridachi where he's talking about how uh, when uh, Giovanni Bentivoli ended up calling to arms, uh, like he tried to raise the citizenry um, to kind of like support him. And so he, he called everybody to arms. And the first captain that he names is Guido Manziolino, which blew my mind, right? Because <laughs> that could be, you know, it's Antonio Manziolino. Right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? But the thing is, is the district that he represented was also the district where eventually the the Drapieri or the, the Cloth Merchant Guild ended up building their headquarters. So my attempt to try to understand this and and maybe this is information that we can kind of like work to find or collaborate on or something is what were the districts of Bologna? I mean, is this, is this a common thing that we see amongst a lot of cities where like you do have that dependency on like this district is specifically related to a guild? Cause I know like in Siena, right? Like, um, one of the, the, the districts is like, you had the Jewish district and in, in particular the Leonfante was their, their symbol, right? I, I wrote about that a little bit where it's interesting that, that Fiore kind of uses the Leonfante as his like foundational piece because it was often associated with uh, with either crusade or with people who were Jewish, right? Because um, it represented Jerusalem to the medieval mindset. So it's interesting that he put it in his text. Yeah, there's um, a whole there's a whole um... role in the you know, martial culture, uh, Yeah, for sure. Central Europe too. Um, uh, there's a guy, or an interesting character of social uh, example, social mobility, who was a burger in um, Constance, and I think he was the son of the burgermeister or something. He ended up 
I, uh, he, he became like in the, he went and got into the court of Frederick III. So he became, you know, some kind of, I think he was ennobled. And then he went on a, on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which he made a beautifully illustrated book all about with all the, you can see all the galleys and everything. I think they got boarded by Ottoman galley at one point in one of the things. But, uh, he had a, a picture of a knight with a coat of arms with this like weird triple hat. And I was, I posted it online and a couple of people, uh, in our HEMA community let me know that apparently that coat of arms is a Jewish thing. It's like a, known to be a Jewish. Interesting. It's like one of those signs. Yeah. I mean, of course we know that we've got various, uh, you know, uh, Jud and Jud Luton mm -hmm. and all these guys that have Jewish names. And in Italy, there's, you know, I, one really interesting little sort of, uh, rabbit hole I found is that, the Genoese colony in Crimea, uh, there was there was a family there that were Jewish, Genoa, and when when the crime when Crimea got taken back over by the Ottomans, those people were sort of stranded, and the guy that was the boss of this whole community there, which included like there were some people that were uh, Visigoths that lived there, and all there was all these other weird little communities of people, and they had to try to figure out how to get out of the region. So he was writing letters to the King of Poland and the and the uh, the Archduke of, of Muscovy and, and you know like can I go and what what's the safe route or can you give me you know free passage or something and apparently they they left and they went there and, and we, we we don't know exactly what happened to them but that needs to be made into a movie you know I mean it was just yeah such an event uh, yeah I also not too long ago by the way you know I'm, I'm one of my other like kind of rabbit holes I'm always delving into are the Kriegs where the these war manuals and I found a I found one that was written in Yiddish and partly in Hebrew and apparently it's best to me come from the Rhineland and um so there's like a Jewish guy somewhere who knows all about the you know the war technology of his day and had made certain interpretations on on a bunch of things that were you know had a Jewish spin on it so to speak and who that guy was and you know what his situation was you know was going would like to that's fascinating. seems like in, yeah. uh, in Italy that there there you know Genoa in particular there there was a lot of quite quite uh prominent Jewish families and I still don't fully understand what the relationship was there there was a big connection with the uh with Bologna and the Jewish um community um there's a big Jewish community in Bologna they were primarily bankers and um as a matter of fact um uh, Giovanni Bentivoglio, the, the way that the, the Bentivoglio family became very wealthy in Bologna was when um, the anti-pope, uh, Gregory XXIII, before he became the anti-pope, um, he was the legate of Bologna, and uh, Giovanni Bentivoglio had put down a revolt between, uh, I think the, the butchers and the wool merchants had kind of risen up, and they were they were upset about something. Giovanni probably caused it because he had deep connections to both of them. Um, but, or, uh, excuse me, this is Anton Galeazzo. And so Anton Galeazzo goes and kind of like negotiates peace, um, with these guilds. And then the, the legates like, Hey, um, as a, as a reward for the, do for doing this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a portion of, uh, um, it's called the Carticella and it's, um, basically a portion of the tax of everything that's sold in Bologna or every contract that's negotiated in Bologna. And so it was primarily focused towards like, uh, the Jewish bankers, but it was a little bit more open than that. But what what that ended up doing is, like, later on, the Bentivoglio family became, like, the primary protectors of the Jewish community in Bologna. So they're, 
Um, I read a really interesting paper about Jews in Bologna and um, it, where it was talking about how the Bentivoglio protect, protected them because they kind of realized that they wouldn't have the wealth and the power that they had without the La Carticella. So they went out of their way to make sure that I think when there was um, one of the popes ended up uh, making it so that Jews had to wear some sort of a marking that they were Jewish, right? I think they, they made some sort of a, a passed some sort of a bull or a decree. And um, I think it was Giovanni II Bentivoglio basically said, absolutely, you're not going to, absolutely not going to have to wear that in Bologna. And then the, the papal legate got involved. He got really upset with Giovanni II Bentivoglio. And he's like, no, man, that's so stupid. Like, that's not, that's not the way that we operate. I mean, these, these Jewish people are a part of our community and you can just fuck off and, that's one of the that, one of the real that, that's pretty cool fascinating that's that's yeah really that's really interesting it makes Bologna even more interesting saying so but uh the the probably the classic K example in in Central Europe the most the most uh, compelling to me is in Krakow uh, which was more or less a German city for a long time in the middle of Poland it gradually becomes you know Polish but uh, it's under it, the the administration of the town is under German speaking people let's say uh, all through the mid medieval and into the early modern period. Uh, and the the king, who one of the major royal castles is in the town, and it's a sort of separate entity in the town. And the town's very much one of these places where they, uh, you know, they they had they enforced their own rights and everything. Uh, they the Mongols were defeated there, I think, two years after yeah. given the right to build their own walls, which the main bastion that still it's which is still there was run by the Furriers Guild, by the way. Oh, interesting. But uh, anyway, the town was aggravating him and at one point they had they had uh killed his top the king's top uh commander in this war they were fighting against the Teutonic order because he went over there and beat up uh really badly beat up an armor in an argument about ill-fitting armor that armor. oh yeah i remember you're talking about that yeah 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 so he's beefing a lot with the city but he likes the city the city's a great you know it's you know his castle's safe because it's in the city partly you know, the Mongols come, a castle's not enough. The city's a bigger, a better defense. Also, all the stuff the city makes and all the stuff you can get, but he's frustrated with the town, so he founds this other town called Kazimierz, named after him, and that is a Jewish town. And he, he made it because the, the Jews in this part, you know, at this time are basically uh, protected by the king, so the king is like their only overlord, more or less, and... So they're allied to the king. They 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 are loyal to the king. So that he makes this town to be kind of a rival to Krakow, um, and it eventually becomes part of Krakow. But this so there's this whole district where you know the, the the Jewish people did everything. You know they weren't just like in in uh, money lending or something. Like they did, they were all the crafts right. and everything else. So, and then as the uh, Reconquista was going on in Spain and, and in places like France where they started. Uh, having pogroms and throwing the Jews out, uh, the both the Lithuanian and, and, and the, well, the, the king of Poland was Lithuanian. That's like a whole other weird thing. But he wrote letters. He said, look, come come to Poland. You people read and write. You, you're good at crafts. You're smart. You're useful. You know, we, we, need, we need useful citizens. So come here. You will not have any restrictions. So we have a total religious freedom law. And that came about because they were merging with Lithuania and the Lithuanians demanded a complete and utter religious freedom law. So like nice. Vilnius. That's really cool. You had mosques, you had Orthodox churches, Jewish synagogues, and Catholic churches of different rival 
uh, branches, including Hussite heretics, all on the same and nobody was allowed to fight, you know. <laughs> That's great. You can live here, but That's we're really pagan, cool. so don't like a utopia. crazy or we'll just... Right. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Like, super, super crazy. Uh, so... Yeah, because that's another one of the, this is one of the things that, oh, lifting up the curtain a little bit, and you're like, yeah, th this yeah. world that we were taught is sort of this extremely restrictive thing and, and a sort of pressingly sectarian and all that. It's actually a lot more flexible. There's a lot more variation, and the freedom is usually found in the, in the towns, you know, quite often. Right. Not, not exclusively, but especially in places like Bologna. Yeah. Like, even in like, Siena, I mean, this. It became this sort of signoria, uh, signoria and everything, and, and I get that. But when I was in Bologna very briefly, and I was staying in front of the Palazzo del Publico, you know, like I got that vibe of the people, power of the media. Yeah, you know, you really feel that right in that square, right? You know, the, all the slogans on the on the uh, on the town hall right there. I mean, that's it, it's strong. So, uh, the thing is, the people tended to support the signori. It was the the oligarchs that didn't like the signori because it cut into their ability to become signori. Yeah, well, that, people just wanted to basically keep the nobles off our back so we can do our stuff. Yeah, yeah, that that's an interesting thing. I mean, that's that's kind of the Julius Caesar pattern, right? Right. Yeah, it, it's that's a very common theme. Uh, well, and and they had they had a good organization for the government to kind of like reduce the power of the the signori until. Right. They started to, you know, change the rules, and that really started after about four, 1387, um, when they they set up the Sedici. The Sedici is kind of the death of the Republic of Bologna, and it was an attempt to reestablish the Republic itself. But they gave too much power to the oligarchs, and the oligarchs slowly just coalesced everything else until, like, uh, a few of the revolts that ended up taking place in like the 1440s are because. Um, there used to be a Gonfaloniere di Justizia, so the Gonfaloniere of Justice, right? And um, basically, um, uh, I think it was Santi Bentivoglio had taken all of the power away from um, the Podesta, which was kind of like the police organization yeah. of, of the city of Bologna, and put it into the power of the Sedici. And they recognized the danger of that situation where they were involved. The Sedici was now involved in every matter of jurisprudence. They had every control of the gut, like of governmental power, every uh, sort of extra Bolognese uh, involvement with government. Power. Right. They they just completely did did away with it, and so that was kind of the consolidation. And and a lot of that came from. Um, Lorenzo de Medici or uh, Cosimo de Medici kind of meddling a little bit in the government of Bologna and uh, really trying to um, influence what Santi was doing. But Santi was also basically Cosimo's puppet. So, um, you know. So it was all Il Betio's fault, huh? <laughs> so I, I personally that, think so, yes. That's my that, that's my suspicion. Yeah, that's not at all. Uh, and he might have had any number of reasons for doing it that way. I mean, like, that makes me think of an interesting parallel uh, because the, there's this guy called uh, Al Piren who was a uh, uh, historian of Flanders and uh, of the, the cities of, of uh, Belgium and what's now what we now call Belgium, the Low Countries. And mm -hmm. um, he he's a little bit controversial because he was a, one of these figures that was trying to build a, build a state. And he was going around the U.S. He was a historian and he was doing lectures in the U.S. about the the history of the free cities in, in Flanders and, and Wallonia, you know, in the low countries and in Holland and the Netherlands. 
Um, and those speeches were turned into books that you can buy in English that are really, really interesting. But one of the points he makes is that the there were two kinds of republics in Flanders and in the Low Countries. The type that came together organically, basically as a bunch of c compromises and little, you know, the Germans call recesses where they back down. You know, they, they say, okay, mm -hmm. conquer you, so we'll make a deal. Uh, that that took place over time, where all these little, all the little economic uh, organisms in the town, all the little groups, sort of made make a truce, and then that's the government, versus the ones that were designed based by people like you know the humanists and whatnot that were had read Virgil and and uh, you know um, all these read all these all these Latin scholars and read Greek scholars and stuff and, and ideas about the how to make a, re, a proper republic, and those always collapsed. Whereas the ones that were organic tended to stand the test of time, and some of them lasted centuries, you know. Uh, and and that what that says is that the technology, the software that made these towns work for whatever, however long they lasted. I mean, Bologna, even if they go down as a republic in the late 14th century, I mean, they, they were around already for a couple, you know, that since, what, the 11th century, they became, you know, when does it start? 13, like 1330 is the first, like, mark of their republicanism with the Pepoli family, Ottario uh, Pepoli. Okay, so what is, so Bologna in the time of the Lombard League is not a republic? No, I think Bologna. they're still, I think they're still subject to, um, as subject as a papal state at that time, if I'm not mistaken. And it's not until later that they act, because they, at least from the historical chronicles, they, they really mention that the, um, that they became like an independent republic. I mean, because they were in and out between who was actually in power and, you know, various parties would choose between the papacy and the outside powers. But they stood on their own as a republic for, for a brief moment between 1330 and 1350. So that, 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 that's another kind of an interesting uh, difference between Italy versus Central Europe, which is that um, in Italy you have true city-states, which I think that's what that you're referring to there with Bologna. That's a period where Bologna yeah. had no, they, there was no overlord at all. In in Central Europe, you have a lot of these. There there are a few city states. Um, either you know, there's there's something called free cities, and then there's free imperial cities or free royal cities. So what free imperial city or free royal city means is, you're you have one boss, and that's the emperor or the king. And in the Holy Roman Empire, with a few exceptions, every few generations there might be a really strong one, but most of the time the whole the emperor is like off in his own little corner. Most of the most yeah. 15th century, it's you know, it's the the Habsburg, uh, Frederick the Third, and he's down in Austria trying to deal with all his enemies in Austria, and not so he's not really your boss, but right. it is different from being a city state. So in Russia, you have city states. In in Italy, you've got city states. There's a few of these what they're called free cities that really are, you know, that by 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 the later 15th century, the Swiss cities have no ruler whatsoever. Uh, yeah. And and effectively, the Hanseatics, the bigger Hanseatic cities like Lübeck, they, there's no, I mean, literally the emperor routinely told them, you have to do X, Y, Z. And they just said, well, can you make us do it? Because I don't think we're going to, oh, and so nothing. So that, and, that, and you'll, are, I've had, you know, German historians tell me, no, that, that was a, that was an imperial city. They had, they were, they had to obey the rule of the emperor. I'm like, okay, here's 16 times that the emperor gave them direct orders to do something they didn't want to do. And none of those times they did it so and yeah. five times he brought an army there and it still didn't do what he wanted to do and he they, you know fought him off so is it uh, is it his vassal but it's it's still different because it means that 
you know, if 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 Bologna is a city state, and that territory gets invaded by the King of France, they might be on their own. I mean, it's a, their only alliances yeah. are going to be whatever they've negotiated with some other cities, maybe, or with regional princes. Whereas if you're in Lubeck and the King of France invades, all of the Holy Roman Empire is going to fight back. So you automatically have some allies. Now, if, if you're in Lubeck and the emperor attacks Lubeck, then you're on your own, or maybe you're counting on your, you know, your buddies like Hamburg and stuff. But so that is a, and, and then they had the same thing in well, Hungary yeah. and in Bohemia and stuff. I mean, the crazy thing about Bologna is they, they literally just picked the worst time ever to become a republic, right? So they, they kicked, they kicked the, the papal legate out, um, who was a, a French cardinal, um, his name's escaping me right now, but um, basically he had been living in excess. He built himself his own palazzo, and it was like absolutely ridiculous the amount of money he spent. <laughs> and the Bolognese people chased him out of town, throwing shit at him. And <laughs> I mean, they they really hated this guy. <laughs> but the problem was is that the time that they did that was when the Visconti were really starting to like ramp up and, and really starting to reach their peak. And um, I think it was Giovanni Visconti, who was a cardinal, um, basically came in with a papal and Milanese army and basically just uh, took over the city and then handed it off to his brothers. And then the Visconti were so loved in the city of Bologna that between the Asinale and the Digaricinda Tower, uh, they built a hanging fortress. So that was... So that way they didn't actually have to interact with the people, but they could still like, you know, like shout down orders at them. But they, they actually had the, so when you see the two towers in Bologna, right? The, uh, I think it's the Di Garcinda tower is shorter, right? So, but the Asinale, the tower is still the same height. They, the Visconti had actually shortened the Di Garcinda tower. So that way, because the, when they built the fortress, it was so heavy that it started to lean. And so they shortened the the, um, the tower so that way they could kind of counterbalance it and they could keep their fortress up there. Um, but yeah, that's how much they were left. And then, you know, the the Bolognese people managed to, to kick them out, but uh, they just kept coming back again and again and again. That's hilarious. Well, yeah. there's a there's kind of an analogy to that with the towers. You just I, I immediately thought of, which is in Nuremberg. Okay, so this is another thing with the free cities is that they're gradually asserting their rights, and it's one thing at a time. It's like maybe I've got the right to to build walls and have a militia, but somebody else gets to determine weight measures, or somebody else gets to mint the coins or something, or maybe somebody gets to try certain kinds of criminal cases. So in Nuremberg, they had uh they they had a castle in the city that was controlled by the Burgrave, who was like some prince. And it, it, it ended up being the Margrave of Brandenburg, part of mm. Berlin is, and became Prussia and all that, um, mm -hmm. you know, in the much later era. So the the city was getting sick of it, of the of the Burgermeister. And, and it's the usual, it's just like the French guy that, you know, goes crazy and, and gets the giant palazzo with solid gold bathroom and everything. Like yeah, the, the these princes would come into the town and they don't get the urban culture. They look down on on the uh, the burgers and they they're throwing their weight around and they they're really pissed about it. So the burgers in Nuremberg, they built this this tower called the uh, I, I got it pulled up L Lugensland Tower and I, and uh, oh. it was so so yeah, it was a tower that looked into the Burgrave's castles. So they could spy on them at all times. <laughs> Yeah, he just had five guys come in there. They're arguing about something in the courtyard. Uh, you know, he's up real late. Uh, you know, 
<laughs> like he's he's drunk staggering around and and eventually and I think there I believe I, I forget what manual I'd have to ask Christian Trosclair to tell me, but one of the Fechbucher has a Lugensland guard. There's the, oh yeah, that's um uh the hanging guards, right? It is, and it's um well actually it kinda looks like Cordial. Well, maybe not, I can't remember. But it's um what? Oh, uh, it's investors. It's the Kuchner. Yes, that's right. That's Look, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so th this is an obvious tie in it, and so then they get they play the the basically the 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 Herzog of Bavaria, which is from another princely family, uh, equal yeah. power, to drive out the this guy uh, that has the the castle, and then they they buy the castle, you know, secretly through third parties, and then they have it, and so then the Margrave hates Nuremberg. And he's stirring up all the knights against them and stuff, and writing missives and hiring people to write about how the burger because they're, whenever the bur the knights kidnap some of the merchants, the the city has this thing. They have a, a feud book, and they write their name down in the feud book with their coat of arms. And by the way, that's online. And they would catch these people. And I think I told you all last time, like the famous case, uh, uh, Evelyn von Galligan, uh was a uh, robber knight. He ki killed a merchant. So they they caught him, and they were going to hang him, and he asked to sit on his horse one last time before they killed him. And they were making fun of him like, oh, you don't want to see your family, huh? And he gets on, they bring the horse and he sits on the horse and then he spurs, even though his hands are tied, he spurs the horse, jumps over the wall of the Burgrave's castle into the moat and he swims away and escapes. And it's <laughs> such a popular story. There's like a million postcards of it and there's murals of it all over. Even in Nuremberg, there were murals of this because it was such a funny story. Although they did eventually catch him a few years later and had him drawn and quartered. But, uh, so th I mean, that was the thing that happened. So this tension that was going on between the Nuremberg and all the local nobles, the lower nobles, was fanned up by um, the Margrave of, of Brandenburg. And some of those guys were hardcore. And and one of them, Albrecht Achilles, actually fought a war against Nuremberg. Yeah. And and guess what the name of the castle was that they were fighting over? A what? It had to guess, and it had something to do with German fencing, like probably the central concept or the central figure in fencing north of the Alps is a guy oh, who's... Lichtenauer's? Yep, it's Lichtenauer Castle is what they were fighting. Oh. One of several, and... Oh. Could be... Oh. And apparently... Well, no. Yeah. So, Albrecht Achilles, so fighting against Albrecht Achilles in the Bavarian War was Louis the Rich, right? Who also, you know, had his own uh, fencing treatise from Paulus Cal. Paulus Cal actually had his first military experience in the um, in the Bavarian War between Louis the Rich and Albert Achilles. Well, he he shows up he shows up at Nuremberg during the war during the Margrave War against Albert Achilles, and so that's like he, the he, earlier portion right before the Bavarian War, I think. If I'm getting my timeline right, yes, I believe so. Uh, yeah, okay, fourteen. I, I can't remember precisely, but uh, yeah, I think it it like I think those two wars kind of like merge into each other, don't they? Well, like, yeah, the Margrave War never really. Yeah, there's yeah. there's this guy there that one of the one of the knights that was constantly like Nuremberg was pretty good at at getting the knights, um, and they had a knight on their side who was one of their commanders that helped win the big battle against Albert Achilles, but mm -hmm. there was this one guy called Conrad Schott von Schottenstein. This was a little bit later on. Um, but he is apparently the knight. This is like, this is the 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 descendant of Albert Achilles. That's another another Margrave of Brandenburg that was fighting him by this time. But the the Durer print uh, 
Night, Death, and the Devil. Was this really simple? Mm-hmm. That's Conrad Schott von Schott. They believe that's Conrad Schott von Schott. Interesting. And um, so by the time you have the Bavarian War, in the the War of the Landhut Succession, which is another you know series of wars of Bavaria, all the regional princes got involved, and all the ma- big free cities got involved. And Nuremberg got in there, and by this time they had a big beef with with the uh, Hohenzollerns of Brandenburg and and this particular night and they they were on the winning side of that and they um you know I guess they had some some forces that were played a substantial role in some of the little you know sieges and stuff so they they ended up negotiating where they got a, a bunch of property at the expense of of uh the Marbury of Brandenburg and of this particular night guy so that's so, apparently a, a side effect of that I've heard I've heard a lot from from Michael Chester about how Nuremberg is kind of the hotspot of KDF sources and overlap between different characters kind of like flowing through Nuremberg. So the fact that we have a Nuremberg castle and, and, or well, we have a Lichtenauer castle in Nuremberg. I know, man, it's, 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 I, a, uh, it, it's pretty, you know, tantalizing. Although that's are, crazy. Yeah. There, there are a bunch of Lichtenauer castles, so it's not the only one. I just sent you a link. Yeah. Apparently the I mean, you, that one. Yeah. yeah no, okay. obviously, yeah. Well, the thing, the other thing to remember about Nuremberg, though, we got to keep in mind is that Nuremberg had a, had probably maybe the first paper mill north of the Alps and it, and it right. had a printing press very early. So we have a lot of Nuremberg's point of view written down on all kinds of stuff. So we, we get, you know, more than from some other towns that might be, uh, important, but Nuremberg, it's, they're, they're kind of close to the frontier. They're not too, you know, they're right next to Bohemia, which they apparently really liked because Bohemia is sort of this wild west zone where you could, you know, you, know, you weren't supposed to trade with them because they're heretics, but Nuremberg trade right. a lot. And, and, uh, right. you know, if you needed to run, you know, you're in trouble and you need to go somewhere and get away from the law or something, go, go to Bohemia. Nobody wants to chase you into there. Uh, they 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 use Bohemia to their advantage uh, and and had beneficial I think trade relations. They also had really good trade route. They were on the big trade routes, the Via Regia and the and the Via Imperia, and they traded down to Venice. And they're not far from the front where, you know, down in Hungary where I mean they're not that close, but close enough that they're they're selling arms to to the uh, Hungarian the 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 right. spoke Hungarian army, the the Feket Sereg, the Black Army. Which and then they're sending mercenaries to quite a bit, and it's interesting on that you know on that travelogue I was saying I, I, I want to try to get translated, mm-hmm. translated. Um, it's that the reason one of the reasons that travelogue is so cool is because it's kind of a, a Rashomon effect. You've got two narrators for every you know in every entry, every place they go. One of the guys is a Czech knight. The other guy is a burger from Nuremberg, and it never explains why he you know he's part of the the sort of princely entourage, and he gets to hang out with the the you know the 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 Duke of uh, of Burgundy and and you know the the, the Margrave of Brandenburg and and yeah you know, the King of wow. England and the kings of Portugal and Spain and they, he's treated like a like a nobleman but he was a burger no apparent that's fascinating yeah yeah uh, not and not the not well, the first time no and I mean we we have a, a similar instance in at least you know adjacent to the Bolognese court. Corpus, where we've got um, Luigi Gonzaga, known as Rodomonte, who's who's the Musa Vigiani, or and um, you know he's he goes up and he gets into 
Uh, he becomes a courtier of uh, Charles V before he becomes Charles V. He's Charles I at that point. And um, so when Charles is going into Spain, um, Luigi and Don Luis Fernandez de Cordova, who's Manchialino's author, um, you know, both of them are, are courtiers of, of Charles and, and his sort of rise to power. And so, he, you know, he has to go into Spain and he has to sort of coalesce all the, the crazy Spanish lords that are just like, you know, you basically have to pay off every single city in order to become like king of Spain, right? So he finally achieves that. And then, you know, there's all this tension between England and France. And Charles ends up getting word that the field of cloth and gold is going to happen. So he sends a letter to, to Henry VIII and he's like, hey, listen, um, I want to meet with you before you meet with Francis the first. And, uh, and Frank, and, Henry, like, I mean, even though everything had been kind of facilitated where Henry VIII was going to end up meeting with um, Francis I to kind of, like, help alleviate tension, um, and, and they kind of had to settle their differences, but um, Charles really wanted to subvert that because his biggest fear was some sort of a Franco, um, uh, like, Anglo alliance and so he tried to he tried to subvert that which as a matter of fact now that i think about it <laughs> the last time there was like a big global german power <laughs> and they didn't prevent that <laughs> they ended up losing right yeah, so <laughs> but charles yeah but charles was relatively successful so i guess that makes sense right now that we think about that charles but um astonishingly he wasn't he really was like i don't think people really understand how powerful that man was like Holy cow. There's a um, anecdote that I'm going to scream up, but it was something like, you know, he, they said that he spoke like French to his horse and Spanish yeah. to his cavalry, German to his infantry, and, you know, it was what Italian to his women. But, but it was, the guy was definitely, uh, uh, you know, a lot of his success can be attributed to gold or silver from Peru and Mexico and all the wealth was in his pocket. Yeah, but I think you're making a great point too about these, um, you know, these these Italian uh, burgers that are going off and becoming courtiers. Uh, That's that because I mean, I mean, well, for it, Columbus, he's from Genoa, right? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing with with Luigi Gonzaga or Luis Gonzaga is that he he ends up going up there, and um, when when Charles goes on this diplomatic mission to go meet with Henry VIII. It gets cut short. Like he, he can only meet with him for like two days, and there's like there, there the the British chronicles are super detailed. Like if you want, you can go on the royal. Ah, uh, shoot, what was it? It's like there's uh, there's a website where you can basically go and you can see what the king did almost every hour of every day, and that chronicle goes back well into the 16th century. It's unbelievable. Yeah, he, he had a prop. Yeah, so one of the things that um, Louis, Luigi ends up doing is he, they go out boar hunting, and Luigi says, you know, he, he wants to be the one that's down on the ground with a boar spear, and just like he so wows Henry VIII and Charles V that both monarchs give him a hug. Right. And so they're like, they're so in awe of him that they give him, a, they embrace him. And it's like, he comes back to Italy and he's like the biggest rock star 
ever. Like everybody's just like, whoa, we got to invite him to our parties, you know? And, and it's like, so I, sometimes it's like, you know, I, I think that we don't really quite understand. And uh, like, I, I see this, especially with some writings um, that I've seen. Uh, so even some academic papers about um, like Giovanni Filatillo and Chiellini, they, they really kind of like focus on him being a really shitty poet. And most of that comes from Pietro Bimbo and him like complaining about uh, Giovanni Filatillo writing in, in vernacular, but also about the fact that he was trying to copy, he was trying to copy Dante. And so he's like, this is like the worst like knockoff of Dante I've ever seen. <laughs> You know, like sickness, right? Dante, but, Dante's a, a, a high bar. Yeah, it is. Um, but the, I think the thing that we don't really appreciate is like the the value of like what it meant to be a courtier. Like you had to be well educated. You had to you had to be able to entertain. So you had to be able to dance. You had to be able to, um, you know, speak multiple languages. Yeah, you had to. I, 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 you had to know how to hunt. Yeah, yeah. tie that a little bit. So one of the things that was very common for the merchants, like speaking of the traveling roaming merchant class, was that they would go far away. They would adopt. They would learn the language and adopt the clothing and the style because you don't want to be the guy, the one guy that dresses. You don't want to be the yeah. guy Harris that's wearing shorts, flip flops. You know, you get dressed like a three, right? You know, even if you came right. from St. Louis, so. These guys, like I've read about in detail, some of the merchants from uh, Dansk, uh, you know, up in Prussia, that were spent ten years in Portugal or Spain, somewhere in Italy or whatever, and they learned the local language, or in or in London, often, uh, you know, a little bit north of there in England, Scotland, you know, or in uh, uh, what, what's what's Bergen in Norway or whatever, and they so they knew how to go local and they. A lot of these guys had been to a few of these places, not just one of them. And when I did, I did a little article about Cellini, and I was also, I did a comparison. It was it was his memoir and another one by this German guy called Bar Bartolomeus Sastrau. Sastrau was like a he had been a burgermeister of a town in northern Germany, uh, and he's in Italy at the time when a bunch of uh, sectarian religious strife is going on, you know, a la Charles V. And he needs to get back home. So he's like, well, what do we, how do we get home? Cause they're like, I'm a Lutheran and I'm down here, deep Catholic country. What he does is he just keep, he's like, one day he dresses up like a Walloon. He's like, yeah, the Walloons wear the dagger horizontally on the back of their, you know, small their back. And they, uh, and, and then he's dressing like an Italian and then he's dressing like, you know, so he's, he's, he's camouflaging himself as he travels all across the landscape. Now that's a, t you know, if you're a merchant from Dansk and you, you've been living in, in, Lisboa for a while. You speak Portuguese. You know how to dress like a Portuguese, mm -hmm. uh, you know, man or nobleman or something or a prominent citizen. Uh, you know this the 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 slang. You know you know a, a lot of the little inside jokes and everything. So guess what? If if you're working for a prince, you're working for Charles V, and he has to deal with Portugal. Like, yeah, I mean, I'll go with you. I'll go do that for you. I, I know I know Portuguese well. Yeah, you know I can sing all the songs, and. Uh, that, so it's an immediate fit, right? So, so and apparently a lot of the burgers, you know, definitely the, the case in, in Northern Europe, but also I'm, I know for a fact in, in Italy, uh, one, of the, one of the chronicles of Florence says that uh, at some point in the 14th century already, they were, the city was educating 8,000 boys and girls on the city dime every year. 
Uh, so they were, t- and kids were taught, you know, up to about the age 12, but they seem to have done a much, much better job of education. <laughs> and then you would get more education if you had money, but, but they needed them to read and write and be numerate in order for their economy to function. That's it wasn't, right. you know, it's, it's beyond our politics of today where today it's a left, right thing. Huh, I wouldn't say how much of that, how much of that was like them actually taking those people on as, as, as apprentices. I mean, were the, a lot of those apprenticeships or was that like just a formal education? It's, this is separate yeah. from apprenticeships and, and I, I'll find out the yeah. chronicler. It's one of the main chroniclers for Florence in that time. Uh, and I've forgotten, I'm sorry, but I'll, I, I could track it down for you. I have it in one of my books and, uh, okay. Yeah, it's it's no, it was it was formal. It was they had these little grammar schools, and and they would usually be in the cathedral quite often, <laughs> and the churches. And not only did Florence educate kids in Florence, but also in the in the surrounding countryside in some places, some of the little towns that were sort of in their orbit. And the same thing is also true, um, in the towns. Do you think German speaking towns north of the Alps? They they started up all these schools. In some cases, there was a tension between the schools that the church was running and the ones that the town was running. Uh, there was apparently mm. even like kind of a civil war about that at Hamburg <laughs> where they had rival songs and everything. But um, awesome. The, uh, the, yeah, the towns were establishing these schools to teach li- read literacy in the vernacular uh, and, and, and numeracy. And guess, guess what their by the 13th century, guess what their math book was like. If you, if you wanted to teach, if you're thinking genius level math and Italy, a name that comes up, think of spirals. Start to I was going to say probably Pythagoras, but not. No, Italian. Fibonacci. Oh, Italian. Fibonacci. 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 Yeah, yeah. Because, okay, get this. So, like, it, let's say you're trying okay. to be a businessman in Italy in right. the 12th century. <clears throat> you got to do all your bills, invoices, and taxes in Roman numerals. And that is not going to be fun. Right. Fibonacci shows up and he says, dude. Arab numbers and zero yeah. and all this. This is a lot easier. So the, the the town fathers in places like Florence are looking at that and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we need everybody doing this. And guess what? You know, all, all the morons in the places that we're trading with are going to be trying to add everything up in the world and they're going to be weak <laughs> yeah. behind us every time. And so like, yeah, yeah the, the Libra Baki of, of Fibonacci was the grammar math book for these little 11 12 year old kids and apparently it was an effective way to learn because they coming out of that you know quite capable Uh, unlike a lot of kids today you know my math skills are not that strong i'm going to be honest you know i was a software developer for 30 years but i'm not i'm not that great at math man and uh yeah and and then then you'd get more so if you if you were in a craft if you if you if you were goldsmith or something you would study you know vitruvius and euclid too a little bit Right. Do you think that that's why um, the Tuscan vernacular ended up becoming Italian, like modern Italian? Quite because lot. they had yeah. the framework of an education system? Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I imagine they probably refined the language, right? Like, I mean, one of the yeah. problems with, like, the Emilian dialect is because you, you might have a completely different dialect from, you know, Faenza versus, like, Bologna. Um, and Modena might have something even more yeah, that's obscure, exactly right? Because we've done a... Exactly the same in France. They all had their own dialects and all the languages. So like you have right, right. a, you know, high and low German. Low German is the dialect for the low countries. Not, it doesn't mean it's a lower language. It's, it's the Northern part of Germany and the swamps, like in the, in the right. low lying countries. And high German is in the foothills of the Alps. And that became the administrative language of the, uh, 
of the emperor. And then you have Rhenish, which is the language up and down the Rhine. And all of these have loan words from other, other regions. I th the, the vernacular language was for business originally. It was like, you owe me 160 denarii for all the sandals that we sent last week, three weeks late. And we know how that's how they were being taught originally because the kids were they were they were study on these little wax tablets, mm -hmm. uh, so it almost looks like a pewter tablet. It's kind of funny, but like these little wax tablets, they would write with a wooden stylus, and they would start doing their homework and get angry and throw it in the latrines. <laughs> so we found a bunch of these latrines with like half filled out business letters. They were teaching them how to do oh. letters, and there's a certain mm -hmm. way that formal type of business letter that Germans. Very good at doing an extremely sarcastic manner uh, that sometimes is very amusing. Um, but they were built. They were developing what's called uh, late manuscript culture, also at the same time. So books that were being read, being made for individuals to read, as opposed to the older version, which would be a book that's meant to be read out loud to a group. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of the things like chapter headings, and you know how they used to do little summaries of what's in the chapter in the beginning, and they're having page numbers and all that. That all the stuff that we're used to in a modern book was in being invented in the 13th, 14th centuries and it, wow. in Italy before anywhere else. And in the 14th century, you know, you had Petrarchus and Boccaccio and Dante, the three fountains, who were um, advocating greater knowledge of classical classical literature and 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 including in the vernacular. So you have all this this vernacular dialect that's used to speak about everything, and then it becomes um, you know, the business language and the language uh, as paper becomes cheaper, it's becoming the language everybody's writing letters to each other in. And then yeah. um, it, they start putting, they, you know, the big controversial thing of, put, of putting classical literature into the vernacular, which was a bold move, you know, by guys. Yeah. Like and, and then now, yeah, you've got a full-fledged, fleshed-out language that has all the good stuff in it, which you don't have in English until Shakespeare, really. You know, Shakespeare is kind of like the end of Contemporaries are when English gets fully fleshed out. Yeah, like uh, the first one yeah, for that, that, for Italian is um um ah I know I know it on on the top of my head like it's on the tip of my tongue the um uh when I say it I'm gonna feel so bad. <laughs> so it's not the three fountains. So I was just thinking it was like Dante. Well, I mean Dante, yeah. I mean, but I think he is the big one. But the the one that really blew up and became really popular because it, it became a worldwide success um, was um, Polo. No, it was uh, it was Arantino. It was um, no, not Arantino. It was uh... was it a novel? poems yeah it was it was a chivalric novel it was um the big one that comes out in like the early 16th century it was uh oh well that yeah that's that's late it it is but it became like a it it became so big because it like it's so much of the the language and everything like that that was in italy right like you had you basically had two classes of language you had the vernacular and then you had like classical Latin, right? And so you see even like, you know, I think earlier we were kind of discussing, I don't know if we ended up getting recorded, but we were we were talking about um, how like the language of the universities, right, was, was in Latin. We were talking about how um, 
you know, Pietro Bembo writes this really scathing, like, rebuttal of, of a Chiellini yeah. and then says that he's basically illiterate and then he's stupid, <laughs> that it sucks, right? And, um, yeah, and, and so I think that there's kind of like this, um, you know, I think it was like Manchialino's publisher, um, Niccolo Lozapino di Aristotele di Rossi. Um, so just Lozapino for now. Um, he, his big thing was was publishing in vernacular. So he only published in Latin a handful of times. He always published in the vernacular and published all over um, Italy. And the, and the big thing about Lozapino is that he was um, like really set on this idea of always publishing in the vernacular. So you see him go through a lot of these publishing works and he was the most popular publisher in Italy. Like he, he published like 465 different volumes, um, over his lifetime, which was a, a lot for early press. And, um, and so he's one of the most, most published, or I guess one of the, the most successful publishers, um, in early Italian, uh, publication. And the question is why? Well, we have a much more illiterate, um, you know, population where, you know, as you have these free cities that are, are kind of coming up and there's a lot of wealth disbursement, right? Because if you're a banker and you have, uh, even a banker might have courtiers, right? Then think about like the Medici yeah, or, or like the Gazzadini in, in Bologna, right? They're going to have their own courtiers. They're going to have their own people that kind of surround them that are intellectual individuals who might have attended university, but, you know, some of them might be well off and some of them might just be yeah, friends big, from a family, big right? Uh, yeah. So, like, you have this, this disbursement of, because you have this trickle-down effect of, like, them elevating other people around them to kind of create their own court so that way they can seem important... Um, you have more people who are reading, you have more people who are educated and they're not always educated in Latin because they're not receiving that classical education. They're probably receiving a local education or, um, even like just being educated within like the framework of somebody who's a mentor in that family. Like you see like the more important courtiers, like Luigi Gonzaga is definitely like he's, we know who his Italian scholar was that came and like educated him. He was, he was a Gonzaga. So he, you know, he was the sort of, uh, in line to be a marquee, even if he was like fourth or fifth or something like that, but he was still like a part of a very important family. Um, so he was nobility by, by birth. And, um, but yeah, I mean, we see this like disbursement of education. So it makes sense that more people are reading in the vernacular. And that's what Lozopino took advantage of. He knew that there was an opportunity there to um, uh, really kind of like push this thing. And I just remembered the, the name of the book. It's Orlando Furioso. Um, uh, yeah. And so Orlando Furioso was, I, and it's, yeah. They were it, on your emo band. <laughs> <laughs> Jean Furioso. <laughs> I love it. So, like, it's not... I first One of the crazy things about that publication is it, it became, like, a worldwide phenomenon. Like, it, it was like, I don't know, think of, like, um, Fifty Shades of Grey or <laughs> so, uh, something stupid, right? Something that really doesn't deserve to become, like, this worldwide phenomenon. 
and it like, totally does, right? Like like the Marco Polo, uh, badly written. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I'm not even sure if it's real, right? Like, yeah, well, I mean, but some of the accounts, right? Whether or not it was actually written, completely made up. Sir John Mandeville travels book, more popular than that, and that was also like all yeah all over Europe. So one thing I wanted to just say about vernacular versus Latin is that. It, on the one hand, it's a it's a revolutionary kind of populist move for your own area. So for people that speak the vernacular, for all those you know seventy thousand Tuscans that that can read and write in the vernacular, arts, and all the ones that in the other Italian towns read it. Um, now that's your audience, but right. you're cutting yourself off from the international audience to a large extent, unless you translate it into Latin. Because Latin, that was the advantage of Latin. Like, if you speak Latin, you can go to the basically the people in the church, people in the universities, and the nobility. It's the more educated of the nobility. And you can talk to them. It's the international language, which is great. Luckily for us, that are, as researchers, a lot of stuff speak English is kind of being used that way, even though we don't really deserve it. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, that's a thing, right? And, but, but, um, yeah, no, it is, yeah. So, but, you know, like, I was just looking up while we were talking. Dante, you know, the the uh, Divine Comedy was not translated into English and German until the 18th century. Wow. Uh, it was translated into French. and the, so They made Latin translations in the 15th century so that somebody could read them. I don't know how good those were. In, yeah. uh, Portuguese, not until the 19th century. Uh, you know, Dutch until the 19th century and so on. So, like... It was hidden in a way. It was like kind of, uh, it was just in Italy. It was like one of these little enclaves of uh, of, of sort of genius literature that was sui generis, you know, it was, it was formed by us, you know, and in our little world. And so on the, on one way, in one way of looking at it, it's it's sort of uh, very democratic and it's for the people. But in another way, it's, it's sort of like parochial, you know, it's like, yeah, it's just for us, you know, like the. We don't need the French reading the Divine Comedy. Who cares about that? Whatever. <laughs> like, uh, uh, although apparently there was a French translation in the 16th But, um, yeah, so so that's the whole thing with the vernacular. That's the funny thing about it. It's the weird thing about it. It's like that it's, it, you know, Latin, I guess, just took longer to teach. I think that's why the, the towns taught people in vernacular because the kids already speak the vernacular. So it's easier to teach them in their local dialect. And then they would also have to learn the trade dialect and the language we know today. Yeah, so you have yeah. specific ones. You know, like in the Rhineland, there's in the Cologne, there's still Kolsch. Yeah. And a bunch of little towns all through, all down there, they have they still have old dialects. But then there's the Rhenish dialect. It's like the language, the trade language. And you know, did you know about Sabir? You ever heard of Sabir? That's the, that was a trade language in the Mediterranean mashup of like Latin, Italian, Spanish, Arabic, even like Spanish or something. Like there's like this crazy patois that, that they would speak in the ports all around the Mediterranean. So like, you know, huh. have old language, you can just go to that. And, you know, I got some of the, I got some of these and I need some, this amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> don't want to pay any taxes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you can pick up every third word and therefore you can understand what they're saying regardless, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter where you're from, but you can yeah. you can get the gist. And that's all that's that's all that's needed, right? 
Yeah. So look, I so I wonder through this. Oh yeah, go ahead. I'm, I wonder. I wonder how that ended up influencing a little bit of like. I mean, if if there was was there any sort of like common language that was shared amongst guilds or like even like common measuring standards, right? Like I know that the 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 Florentines had a specific measuring standard that they used. Um, that was pretty universal. Like they had it. They had it like a big plaque on their wall inside of their wool merchants guild and it was like that's what they would measure off of so like if you're if you're measuring like a, a hide of a sheep or something like that or a bundle of, of uh, wool or something you would hold it up against that and you would determine what that measurement was and then you'd move on like would, were there generally like universal standards or attempts to create universal standards no and that's one of the things that like happened after the french revolution and it was considered one of the big flaws of the you know the medieval system so, like, when you look at, for example, um, uh, the shooting festivals, one of my, you know, my, one of my little rabbit holes, like, dive into yeah. the German world, also big in Italy. Um, the German invitations for those have all the rules, all the prizes, and then they've got, like, a, there's, like, a black bar that uh, I didn't know what the meaning of it was at first. And then there's a couple of circles, and the circles are, that's the size of the bullseye for the target. And this bar represents our local unit of measure, and, and it would be like a, a fraction. So an L was the typical unit, which is like, I think, elbow to the tip of your finger theory. But each town, it was a different distance. Maybe they're taller or have longer arms than Stuttgart and they do. And... But um, mm -hmm. so they're like, okay, it's going to be, it, the distance to the target is 75 Ls of Lanshut. And this is a Lanshut. This is a quarter of a Lanshut L, so you can measure it yourself. So they had to do that. And like, if you ever read and all the dial, all the uh, chronicles and letters and everything, whenever they talk about money, they'll say like a uh, livre tournois, uh, you know, uh, or, or they'll say uh, a pound sterling. That means the pound of the city of sterling. That's what they called a pound, uh, which is gotcha. actually not a pound. It's 12 ounces and it's right. Yeah. <laughs> or something. And yeah. So, so, or they'd say a, a florin, uh, which is like going to Florence or, you know, a Venetian ducat as opposed to the Padoan ducat right. might be different. So yeah. you got to watch the, the bull and easy print. Lira. Oh, I got a good yeah. deal, man. Like, I, I, I just bought a bunch of uh, armor for 16 ducats. So they're like, no, you idiot. It says Venetian ducats. So you thought it was Padoan ducats. And like, now quite a thought. Like, that's one of the tricks. That's one of the, the difficult parts. And, and of course, with commodities, which includes the money, Values changed as economic things happen, you know. So sometimes you could cut a deal, and you're shipping your grain for X amount of money, or to trade it for some other commodity, and then you get to the port, and uh, things changed. We got there, and now you're not gonna make some money on the deal. Uh, but look, man, uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying the conversation. Love to do this again, uh, but I'm gonna have to wrap up. And I wanted to, before I go, I just wanted to mention real quick this one last thing about that we had discussed. Absolutely, or what's calling. Uh, what we're calling it, no source left behind. And the idea is to try to get some support from some of our HEMA buddies and some of our friends and in, in other, you know, uh, adjacent, you know, hobbies and interests of Brohort people and actors, the, uh, collectors and the, and the people that are just into the history. Um, we have discovered all these wonderful sources and you uh, and Stephen have turned me on to one of the best ones I've ever even heard of, 
just this yeah. like, Mario Sanudo thing and a giant secret diary of the guy who is like out of privy to Council of Ten meetings in Venice and, and all the battles and it probably was in the intelligence service and we need these things translated and uh, there's another one that I really love which is this Czech travelogue where he, he was trying to create sort of a proto EU that was like the secret purpose but it was the, these it was a sort of a nightly entourage traveling all over Europe and they all wanted to see him like you were saying the guy that was hunting the boar on foot and mm -hmm. the king these checks were impressing everybody they could do stunts like like uh a guy, uh, one of the one of the the knights could just break a lance against a solid wall without killing himself or breaking the horse's neck, and they couldn't believe that. And they had they had a, a ringer who could beat everybody grappling, and so every court they went to, this guy always won. And so they were celebrated just for that reason. But it's this fantastic travelogue with two voices. This is one guy from Nuremberg, one guy from Czech, uh, one who's a burger, one who's a knight, and so you get this Rashomon effect. And I want to get that. A retranslate, retranslated. We have seen yeah. these kind of things like the uh, Guts von Berlichingen memoir. Mm -hmm. uh, that there's been, there's like there's three translations of that now. I think maybe one of them is pretty good. But um, people are starting to get a little bit interested in this, some of this context stuff. And I, I would like to. We we don't have any details on how to do this yet, but I would all oh, like count on y'all's support because you're kindred spirits on this. It's, yeah, or, definitely. You know these stories. These are such wonderful stories. Yeah. You know? I I look, I agree. I mean, I I think that I've I've I haven't touched fiction. And this breaks yeah. my heart because I, I I used to really love reading fiction. I haven't touched fiction in, in years because once I got past the and you know, the hurdle of really like in enveloping myself in historical research and kind of figured out the methodology of how I needed to read and learn and everything like that. Um, I find so many cool things. Like it, it's just unbelievable. Like Giridachi, I mean, it's it's readily available, but um, you know, it hasn't been translated. And it's like, why not? I mean, these are everybody wants to know what's going on in medieval Italy. It's it's super fascinating. You want to read about Fiore's student, uh, Lancelotto Bacciaria? He's in there. Like Giovanni de Mantova, he's in there. Like, I mean, do you want to learn about like, you know, some of these characters that we talk about and and that we kind of reference in like real world applications of one of Fiore's proteges actually like fighting? I mean, yeah, and like, uh, it's one, pretty incredible. One of the sources that Jack Gassman talks about a lot is the von Seldenick uh, house books. Uh, you know, it, it's the it's it's all the war stuff. It's all the it's all the the Kriegbooker stuff that. It literally just takes the fencing in length an hour and puts it into the world of like when do you have to use this reel and how and why and what are all the yeah. And another one, another big one is are the the Swiss chronicles, the wonderfully illustrated Swiss chronicles that everybody's seen pictures from, but that hasn't been translated into English. So we'd love to get some of this stuff translated. We're going to try to yeah. how to like crowdsource some uh, support for that, and we've got some translators lined up, and I know that you guys are doing translation. Y'all. To do this, and I, I, look, I don't know if that's ever gonna anything's ever gonna happen on it, but I I want to try to make that start to happen with some of these things because I think we got a chance. You know, we did this wonderful moonshot with all the manuals, all the fight books, I should say. <laughs> Certain people would be mad at me for saying manuals, but uh, fight books. We got all the fight books translated, and lots of them. We've discovered all. We've created this big hour thing, and it's just been a it's, it's been a great 
you know, journey and, and this moonshot that so many people participated in and all the people who fought, you know, and practiced and learned how to sword fight. And now we can, we can expand the bridgehead a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and look, so you owe me a dinner. Are you going to come on mine and, and do a, a, a little, we'll do a short one. Yeah. I would, I would love to. That sounds awesome. Uh, but yeah, man, thanks for coming on. And, um, it was obviously, I mean, it was a pleasure to have you and really appreciate you. Yeah. And have fun at, uh, Oktoberfest. Um, yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely get you out there next year. You're on, you're on my, on my A-list for next year, for sure. Yeah. Hopefully I'll be in a better position. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, anybody that wants to. Yeah, and I'll um I'll put a link in the show notes too. Yep. Yeah. All right. Have a good one.